Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. The band is back together. Fault Lines, Thomas and Chan. We also have a guest with us. I was wondering, I I was saying it to myself because we had been doing the the, back and forth, the back and forth. And I said, hmm, what is Jamal? Is Jamal going to get this right? Is he going to is he going to nail it? And you nailed it. (laughs) Well, you got to do your do rag conservative. Do rag conservative? (laughs) What? Yeah, that's my that's my hashtag. Do rag conservative. That's my hashtag across social media. I am the do rag conservative. Okay, fair enough. Who's not wearing a do rag, by the way? And atomic MAGA. Atomic MAGA. I'm going to wear the do rag one day. You've, oh, you've reached Atomic Mega status. Oh, yes. He got the Atomic. Atomic Mega. I'm Atomic Mega. Oh, that was because of Biden commentary. Yes. On the other day. In, yeah. in Philly. No, yeah. in Philly. No, last this was month. before then. Yeah. A month or two ago? Oh, okay. Two months ago. Yeah, one, once Biden started going with the existential threat and all of that yeah. and that Ultra Mega, and I was that? like, you yeah. know what? I'll be that Ultra Mega then. Oh, I wow. Is that Ultra Well, when you start Dominic branding Mega. 50% of the American electorate, yeah. a. a a th- literally a threat to the country, to our democracy. Yeah. You're going to set some people Look, off. I could get maybe 15%. I get that. Not half. I don't, I don't buy the half stuff. And look, even with the existential stuff, I can get that if you have some level of responsibility of your own self. Then yeah. why? <laughs> why? Like, why did 30% of conservative, why did 30% of people who voted for Obama went to Trump? Yeah. Then you got to deal with that. And you can't say minorities. And you have to, you yeah, have to exactly. That question. You minorities. have to answer that question. You can't ignore that question. Oh, those people right. just want to destroy democracy. Right. Nonsense. Right. Nonsense. Right. Nonsense. Your party tomorrow is going to have to answer. Oh man, to red wedding. Where a all red wedding? Where not all, but many, many minorities switch teams or just not vote. It's that part. I or mean, believe it or not, out. because look. I, for African Americans, I don't think they can overcome the hurdle of voting Republican. I think what they can do is like, they're not going to get my vote. Stay at home. Yep. I'm going to play Xbox. <laughs> Figure it out on your own. I think it's that part. It's that part. I mean, I've asked conservatives, I'd be like, okay, why don't you make the pitch for blacks? And many would say, well, look, we try, but we don't believe we can make that pitch. You don't got to make that pitch. I mean, what? 90% of blacks vote Democrat. What if 10% stay home? Mm-hmm. You lose. You can change, yeah. Yeah, you call it a day. But I That's think right. what, we're, what we've been seeing over the past uh, year, actually, when we're talking about even the polling and right now during the midterms, we're seeing that minorities in general are not necessarily leaving the Democratic Party, but they are considering Republicans yes. this cycle. And it's so, as we said, you know, Democrats are going to have to answer the question why, because the typical things that we talk about as far as, you know, the racism mm-hmm. and uh, all of that's still there. But there are black people, and I think that black men mm-hmm. are really going to tell a story this election Oh, man, they're getting cycle. fed up. When you get, what, Charlemagne the God, when he brought Biden on that day, and mm-hmm. this was like the last term, he was like, oh, if you don't vote for me, you're not black. There was a huge uproar over that. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, there should be an uproar over that. But all things being equal, you also have to kind of check yourself on why would Biden say something like that. And look, all things being equal. Yeah, I think tomorrow there's going to be a reckoning. Yeah, we, will, a reckoning. we will see. Yes. We will see. All Look, right, with that, let's headlines. head over to the headlines today. Let's start off with domestic news. 
Former President Donald Trump said on Sunday that he doubts the country could survive the two remaining years under President Biden, alluding to the failures of the administration. He said, quote, this country, I don't know if it's going to live another two years. That's what's happening. So you've got to get out and vote for this man. He was there campaigning for Republican uh, candidate for Senate, Dr. Mehmet Oz. He says he is a good man. Trump speaking at the campaign rally in Pennsylvania ahead of the midterms tomorrow. Trump stressed that, quote, the U.S. has never been so bad as it is right now. He said, it's never been in this position. We're not respected any place. It's, it's amazing that we love each other and we're having such a good time. And yet the subject is so negative. There's nothing good to say about what's happening in our country. Okay, a little non sequitur, but that's all right. And President Biden on Sunday said, the price of gas at the pump is currently 319 per gallon, which is almost 20% lower than the figures of what AAA is publishing daily. Now, Biden said this, right now, the most common price at gas stations across the country is 319 per gallon. That's progress. Now, folks, this is in writing. This is on Twitter. However, according to AAA, their Sunday data shows that the average price for gas was really more at like 380 per gallon, which means 19% higher than what Biden was claiming. So according to AAA's numbers, out of all U.S. states, only Texas and Georgia, two places where the price of gas was actually below the 320 mark. So President Biden fact-checked by AAA. And the Biden administration is apparently privately encouraging Kiev to demonstrate a readiness to negotiate with Moscow. WAPO reporting, citing people familiar with the discussions. The newspaper said on Sunday that Washington does not want Ukraine to start negotiations with Russia, but instead aims to ensure that Kiev has the support of other countries. Quote, Ukraine fatigue is a real thing for some of our partners, according to this unnamed U.S. official. And according to the newspaper, concerns are mounting in parts of Europe, Africa, and Latin America as food and fuel prices are rising amid Russia's ongoing special operation there in Ukraine. Then a young woman called Piper Lewis, who just, just turned 18, pled guilty to stabbing Zachary Brooks, age 37, more than 30 times after being forced into sex trafficking through the threat of violence when she was just 15 years old. The Iowa teen was sentenced to five years of closely supervised probation for killing her alleged rapist. But she escaped custody at the woman's facility she was housed in on Friday, according to local media. Now, Lewis said she had found herself homeless and living in the hallway of an apartment building in Des Moines after running away from her adopted mother, who Lewis said was also abusive. Back then, a 28-year-old man eventually took her in, forced her into sex trafficking, and in 2020, after she says she was drugged and repeatedly raped by Mr. Brooks, Ms. Lewis admitted to killing Brooks in a fit of rage. Then President Biden seems to have acknowledged that Republicans 
possibly taking over Congress in next week's, actually this week's midterm elections tomorrow, may lead to him being impeached. In an address to his supporters in San Diego, President Biden said that he was, quote, already being told if they, the GOP, win back the House and the Senate, they're going to impeach him. Quote, I don't know what the hell they're going to impeach me for. I'm not joking. Recently, they said we should stop talking about that till we win. I don't know if that was in remarks. He, I don't know. He went off script is what I'm willing to bet. Off script, President Biden. I bet his PR team was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Another mess we got to clean up. All right. So international news. The Russian bots and trolls blamed for former President Donald Trump's 2016 election victory have reportedly returned to U.S. social media platforms ahead of the midterms tomorrow. The New York Times claiming on Sunday that they are focusing their discord-sowing, disinfo-promoting attacks on alternative networks like Gab and Parler, citing researchers from Recorded Future, Mandiant, and Graphica, a questionable accounts believed to be linked to Russian troll farm internet research agency, IRA, are targeting conservatives ahead of Tuesday's midterm elections, the researcher said, hitting familiar themes like voter fraud, Democrats' perceived leniency on crime, and the administration's blank check to Ukraine, transgender children, and other hot-button issues. Right, so all of the things that Americans are legitimately angry about must be Russian trolls. Of course. And you can trust the New York Times. You can always trust the New York Times. And the U.S. is apparently tired of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and will stop supporting him as soon as Washington no longer needs, quote, its puppet in Kiev, says Florian Philippet, leader of the French Patriots Party. Ouch. Scathing remarks. Saying this, the American government is starting to get tired of Zelensky and is asking him to negotiate with Russia. When the U.S. no longer needs its puppet, they will get rid of him, as always. As always. Yikes. Juan Guaido is somewhere saying, like, I, I know, man! Like, what, what about me? Hey. What about me? Hey, can I come back? <laughs> then NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said on Saturday that the chance of Russia using nuclear weapons in Ukraine was small, though the bloc was taking this issue seriously. The risk that Russia would use nuclear weapons in Ukraine was low, but the alliance was very serious about it, as the consequences of a nuclear attack would be devastating. Stoltenberg told the Turkish broadcaster NTV, adding that Russia's position on the use of nuclear arms remained unchanged. The Secretary General added that NATO wanted to make it clear that there would be no winners in a nuclear war, as he condemned Russia for irresponsible and dangerous behavior. Not theirs. Never. Yeah. 11 light. 11 Rainbows. And then Syrian Air Force in response to an attack by militants of the Jabhat al-Nusra terrorist group on positions of government forces in Latakia destroyed a militant training camp, said Major General Oleg Yegorov, the deputy head of Russia's Defense Ministry Center for Reconciliation of Opposing Sides in Syria. Quote, 
As a result of the attack, a training camp for militants and underground shelters of illegal armed groups in the area of the settlement of the Ashkani Taktani were destroyed. 93 militants were killed, including field commanders. 135 members of the terrorist group were also seriously injured, Yegorov told reporters at briefing. Now, he also added that the Air Force destroyed a drone assembly workshop and up to 40 strike drones preventing terrorist attacks at the Russian armed forces and Syrian government forces. Then this day in history, back in 1917, the October Revolution in Russia. Well, I would say it's November, but you know, it ended is what I I think it means here. It ended. The October Revolution in Russia ended. (laughs) There's something about the months. Maybe it's... We're on a Gregorian calendar. Yeah, it's a different it's calendar. Ortho- Orthodox. Yeah, spectrum. it was something about the months that were different between the two. <laughs> but the October Revolution, that book is. But, but. Oh, Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks seized power, captured the Winter Palace. I love that name, Winter Palace. Yeah, like a movie, Winter Palace, and overthrow the provisional government. Lenin was sitting in like a bomb. Then back in 19, 1931, the Chinese People's Republic has been proclaimed by Mao Zedong. In the year 2000, controversial U.S. presidential election, you might recall this, George W. Bush and Al Gore turns up inconclusive. The result, eventually, you know, went in Bush's favor, hanging Chad. Yeah, hanging Chad. Oh, oh, man, I remember that stuff. Paper ballot. Yeah, that's right. Eventually resolved by the Supreme Court, but it took a couple weeks. Everybody was... Court basically took the the verdict and was like, oh, you can't use this for any other cases. Yeah, people looking through, like, is this one punched? I remember the video. It's yeah. literally hanging they and dangling. They should have just had a new election in Florida. That's just, yeah, well. Yeah. And last thing here in 2020, former vice president, back then, Joe Biden, declared the winner of the U.S. presidential race four days after the U.S. election, defeating incumbent President Donald Trump. That was this day. All right, that's going to do it for your headlines this Monday, November the 7th. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right. I love that. I love that last headline. The October Revolution, yeah. Fascinating book. I've heard different portrayals of that. Some people think that that was a slicing up of Russia. Just fascinating stuff. But look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan. We'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And just getting back after a week from Brazil, um, I know a lot of talk that I was on the beach most of the time, but to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, but that was Sorry, only like Jamal, one, we had to. That was only we like one to. day. Every other day it rained, with the exception of one other day. But again, the beach weather was gorgeous. Women, of course, was very attractive. Uh, I should say the people in general were attractive. Well, I mean, it's a beach, we, right? We wanted to know, are there nude beaches in Brazil? I didn't see any nude beaches, personally. But we know that... I know the, they're, the, there. they're there. Are there they there? Somewhere, it's a, it's I'm a sure. very thong-clad beach society, right? It is thong-clad in many respects. Um, not as much as I think you would think, just because it's kind of... It puts you in the mind of like a beach town. Like every beach town I've been to, even in Egypt, people are very chill. It's very, you know, that type of thing. Um, okay. But... It, <laughs> great country, 
Loved it. I thought Rio de Janeiro was gorgeous. San Paulo, Sao Paulo was awesome. The food there was absolutely amazing. Was that your first time? First time, yeah. I had never been to Brazil before. And one of the, being there during the election, I'm a sucker for politics. I don't care where it is. Anywhere around the globe, I talk to anybody. And one of the fascinating things, the people that I had the opportunity to talk to that spoke English, and I guess you could translate this to the U.S. There were people who were Lula supporters. No issue. Easy to talk to. People who are Bolsonaro supporters, again, easy to talk to. And one of those guys lived in the U.S. for a while. And he said, he says, look, Brazil requires a strong hand. I was like, well, what does that mean? He was like, he's, his point was, we need a dictatorship. And I'm, my job is— I mean, in, he said dictatorship? Yeah, he said they need to be a military dictatorship. It needs to be wow. overthrown. It needs to be a strong hand. Wow. And I'm like— and my thought was, that's so short-sighted. The guy was somewhat young. And my thing to him was like, okay, why do you think that? And his thing was, well, Brazil is a difficult country to live in. There are all sorts of issues of poverty. And as he's having this conversation, it's reminding me of the thing that the left often says, that oftentimes you get into a situation where when there's endemic poverty, or for that matter, when it seems that the left has basically failed in its responsibilities, there's a tendency to move towards the right. Meaning, if the left doesn't do its job, this job being to ameliorate the worst edges of a particular capitalistic system. Meaning, yes, you're going to have greed, you're going to have corruption, you're going to have a situation where the rich is going to run roughshod, but it's the responsibility of the political space, especially from the standpoint of the left, in order to ameliorate that, to make feel like everybody else has a share in that particular government. This is a Mark Frost argument, right? A libertarian argument. All things been equal. You need the people to feel like they have equal share, that they that there's something within the context of that government and that society that they themselves also can put their hands into that they get something out of. And when you don't get that, you get people who are very angry and antagonistic against the government itself. And having the conversation with him, both at home, as clear as day. Oh, they're all corrupt. I don't like Bolsonaro. I don't like Lula. I don't like either one of them. And yeah, we need something a little bit more stronger in order to take control, in order to force people to behave in the way that they're supposed to behave. Well, then you get into, okay, well, how should people behave? What do you want that military dictatorship to do? What is the, you know, meaning what is it? that you think that dictatorship is going to do that the other system can't necessarily do. And in their mind, democracy has failed. Now, that's not everybody. That's not 49% of the population that basically voted for Bolsonaro. That's not the case. You might get 20, 30% that may take that position. But think of the position, though. It's somewhat of a wild and out there position. And I want to apply that to the United States for a moment. The Biden administration at this moment is screaming, I'm going to be impeached. They're going to impeach me. They're going to drag me out of chains. My name is Joe Biden. That's what they're going to do to me. Or for that matter, if you remember when Joe Biden was running once before, he said they're going to have black people in chains. This was when he was with Obama. Put you back in chains. That's right. They're going to put you back in chains. Mitt Romney. He was yeah. talking about that with it Mitt was Romney. Race against yeah. Mitt Romney. He was racing against Mitt Romney. He said put that. Y'all, actually, put y'all, put y'all. He's going to put y'all time. back in chains. That's what Joe Biden Unchained. got out there and said. Yes. It was like some unchanged. Yes. Yeah. He said that during one of the campaign things. Oh, this now, is back when he was lucid. Yeah. Back this was when he was lucid. This is oh, okay. when he was eating wow. nuts. Lucid. This was when he was um, um lucid. Yeah. He was still there <laughs> at this point. He wasn't the wisp of a man that he is now. I guess the point that I'm making is that. This argument about, oh, a fascist takeover of the United States. Oh, they hate the government of the United States. If that is true, does the left share some level of responsibility for the fact that the public is taking that tenor? And again, I point out, 
30% of the people that voted for Obama. Hope and change. Obama went screaming, pillar to po- hope and change. That's what's going to take place. These emancipatory terms. I love these terms. I have no idea what those terms mean, but they're emancipatory. Nonetheless, did you get your hope and change? And that answer is, of course, no. Yes, 20-something million people got on health care. He gets my applause for that. But all things been equal, hope and change, no. And to the point where 30% of the public is like, yeah, I didn't like what I got out of this. And they decided to move over to Trump. You have to, on some level, have some soul searching as to why. You can't say that Hispanics decided to vote for Republicans because they were their proximity to blackness. And then just leave it on that. And you just talk to your other buddies. Hey, proximity to blackness? Yes, proximity to blackness? Yep, that's what it is. We did nothing wrong. We are blameless in this particular situation. If you think back when Sanders was running, what happened? You had all of those people that were galvanized, all of the youth, all of those people who wanted health care and uh, educate, all of that stuff, Social Security and everything else. Those people came out in groups. Those people stood out in rain. Those people stood out in lines that were three times wrapped around the block because they believed what he was saying. When Chris Matthews made the point of saying if Sanders takes it, he takes the party for a generation. Why? Is it something that he's offering that harkens back to what Democrats were supposed to be, that maybe those people were basically rallying around? And when you couldn't get Hillary Clinton to fill a doghouse and you couldn't get Joe Biden to fill a doghouse, what does it mean? Meaning you ended up with a candidate who was just a placeholder to prevent Trump from taking office. That is a far cry and far different from them voting for somebody who they actually want. They rally around and they full well believe that person is going to basically be the avatar of the things that they believe in. If you think that there is going to be a fascist takeover of the U.S., then you need to ask the left, how did you get it so wrong that the right could get in power in the first place. And that is not an argument that's going to take place. It's not a conversation that's going to take place. Nobody in the Democratic Party is going to have that conversation, especially now during the case of the elections. And even when it was this kind of thought that, okay, well, at the point where Trump took over and Republicans took over, maybe they'll have this autopsy. Maybe they have this thought about what did we do so wrong that allowed the right to take that much power. That conversation never took place. Nancy Pelosi came out and said the people will eventually come back, meaning They understood that they had people in this weird situation where they were going from back and forth without any particular exit of that particular system. And I guess I'm trying to point out that in the same way in Brazil, where they looked at the system and said, this no longer works, it is possible that you're getting to this place in the U.S. where the same thought is taking place. No, I don't necessarily think that the people are openly saying we need a military dictatorship. I don't think it's that. But I do think that you have a large share of people who are basically leaving the political space. How many people do you get voting in the presidential elections? What, 50%? Well, what happens to the other 40% or 49% that don't necessarily come out and vote? And why is that 49% coming out to vote? Is it that they believe that there is no reason for them to do so? That their belief, their want in a political space doesn't necessarily affect anything in regards to the government itself? And how long can you have a system that perpetuates itself under that model. I mean, for God's sake, in one election, you had Donald Trump win and they basically said the guy didn't win. And then you tried to get him to pass sanctions on Russia saying that they helped the president get in office. And when the president didn't necessarily want to pass those sanctions because he didn't necessarily want to own up to the fact that Russia helped them over the finish line because Russia didn't help him over the finish line, they screamed right there. There's more evidence that Donald Trump is working with the Russians, meaning Donald Trump didn't get elected on his own steam. He got elected through help of a foreign power. Now, no, 
That is not Democrats directly going at the electoral system screaming fraud, but it is basically saying that the guy didn't win on his own merits. You've basically undercut the legitimacy of a president of the United States, something that was a third rail. I don't care how you do it. You did it. Same thing with Trump. Trump takes office. He screams fraud. That's fraud. The CIA was working with um, um, the ghost of Hugo Chavez in order to help Biden get elected and win the race. Well, yes. He is hitting the electoral system directly in a situation where you get a huge number of Republicans who basically said Joe Biden didn't win on his own merits. Joe Biden won because Joe Biden cheated. How often or how long can your country perpetuate itself when the entire legitimacy of a particular candidate, let's say your entire system is based on legitimacy and that legitimacy is conferred through the vote and you've basically attacked, undermined and destroyed that purely for political expedience of your particular party to get in power. That was not something that we've done in this country before. And that is something at this point that has become basic part of our politics. What I'm getting at is you've missed the boat. You've jumped the shark a bit. The political parties at this point have no longer started working or no longer worked towards the best interests of the public itself and have found other means in order to get in office. It's the Russians. It's the Chinese. It's the Iranians and their drones. It's um, Russia invading Ukraine that's causing the problem. It's COVID that's causing the problem. It's everything else except the issues of the politics itself. Meaning, instead of your politics dealing with the real physical matter, material needs of the population itself, whether you're Republicans or whether you're Democrats, you've decided to bring in other issues such as cheating as being part of the conversation in regards to our political space. This doesn't care about the population. This doesn't care about the whims and needs of the population itself. This cares more about the party. I'm saying that this is a gateway to nowhere. This is a gateway to basically oblivion in regards to our politics. Yes, the issue with Ukraine is still going on. Joe Biden has basically wed himself to it. And in wedding himself to this, what has he basically wrought on his own population? Basically the same blacks that don't vote for him that aren't black. What does it mean for the poorest members of your population when your inflation is going through the roof? For that matter, what does it mean for your population when they continuously increase rate hikes because they can't necessarily deal with inflation that you basically help cause and is help perpetuating by your continued support of this war in Ukraine? I'm getting at that Joe Biden is basically taking one action after the next that is adversely affecting the most, let's say, the, the weakest. And I don't want to say weakest. Let's say the poorest or the most vulnerable members of his particular contingency. And instead of him recognizing that, and instead of him realizing that, his response is, the Republicans are going to impeach me, so you should vote for me. Or the Republicans are going to overthrow the government of the United States, so you should vote for me. None of these things have anything to do with anything that Joe Biden has done. And usually this thing used to be, are you better off today than you were two years ago, four years ago, X number of years ago, considering the Democrats have the House? Democrats ask the Senate, Democrats ask the presidency. When that question is asked, that question is specifically on the shoulders of the Democratic Party themselves. Joe Biden is a man who's looking for an argument in order to keep himself and his party in office. And at this point, he is grasping at straws because there is nothing quite out there for him to basically use to come up with a good reason for people to vote for him tomorrow. He come up, comes up with fascism, fascism. They're going to overthrow the government of the United States itself. And look, I give them Trump on this one, tried to do that. But it's a secondary cry for whether or not the Republicans he's going to put in office are going to be the ones who do that. And again, I point out why would they even be able to get close enough to do something like that? And why would the public even change over 
to that being a potential eventuality. I'm pointing the finger here at the left. Yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. Yes, Joe Biden can talk about Republicans all he wants, but at the end of the day, the things that he had power and control of had to do with the political space and what he could do for the population to get that population <laughs> jazzed up to vote for him. The key issues, economy, inflation, and immigration. And on those issues, Democrats are nowhere to be found. Instead, they're screaming about women's rights, and I think the other two, because the other two were so far down the list that they didn't ultimately matter. Tomorrow will be a red wedding. And it's going to be a red wedding, not because of anything that the Republicans have done so far. Yes, they might have been talking about inflation and economics and all that other stuff. I have no belief that they're going to do anything about it. The issue here, more than anything else, is did you do enough for the population to come out and say, yes, we want to keep those people in office? And the honest answer to that question is just no. Plainly, straightforwardly, flat, factly, absolutely no. You're going to lose tomorrow, not because of what Republicans did, because it's a direct result of what you didn't do. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with um, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM at 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us at phone, by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. Benjamin Netanyahu, Bibi. The Come level, the level of political acumen associated with Benjamin Netanyahu is utterly astonishing. A beast. A beast. And whatever you want to think of him, he has this ability to cling and keep his eye on power with a finger just on the pulse in any particular moment. Teflon Don. Teflon Don. And which number is this for him? The fourth? I don't know. Well, maybe. Is it a fourth? Fourth. Yeah. I mean, it's astonishing. The, the amount of, of capability that he has to basically stay in power. So. Lapid, I saw him concede last night, or the very least I saw the thing that said Lapid um, conceded last night. Phoebe is going to be able to form the government. So let's have a conversation with our guests. We're joined with Robert Inklish. He's a journalist. Inlakesh. Inlakesh. Thank you. Inlakesh. Inlakesh. Is that right? Yes. Okay, Inlakesh. He is a journalist, writer, political analyst who's lived in and reported from the Occupy Palestinian West Bank. He's written for publications such as Schmidt Press, Mundo Weiss, Memo, and various other outlets. He specializes in analysis of the Middle East, in particular issues of Palestine and Israel. Robert, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. No, man. Thank you for joining us. Bibi Netanyahu, how did this happen? (laughs) How did this happen? Why does it keep happening? Yeah, I'm fascinated by this. This is what, the fifth government that's being formed in five years? Correct me if I'm wrong on that. How did Bibi Netanyahu get back in power? The system that's set up basically by the Israelis um, is one where in its history, it's always needed a coalition in order to form a government. And Netanyahu is the most popular political figure in the country, bar none. And so he's always got 
some popular base and support for him. It's just about whether he is able to secure the support of other right wing parties um, as to whether he can take uh, control. And Israel is a very, very right wing place. And so um, he's been able to play off of that and do it. And because, you know, it's been the Netanyahu show for so long, he served for 15 years and now he's back at it again. Um, people really can't imagine anything other than Netanyahu and his way. Um, and especially because of the uprising that we've seen from Palestinians in the West Bank lately, uh, issues of Israeli security are now very important oh, again to uh, the Israeli public. And so Netanyahu needed to secure at least 61 seats in the 120 seat Knesset. Um, he's done that, uh, more than that, uh, 64 or 65 yeah. seats, yeah, I believe, along with religious Zionism, Shahs, and a number of different uh, right-wing parties. Um, so, yeah, he's come back to power now. So the first time around is, so there were, okay, so there were Arab parties that basically were able to get rid of ben, Benjamin Netanyahu the first time around um, in the Knesset itself. And I, my reading on this, there was a certain somewhat of a repudiation of that. Correct me if I'm wrong. That basically, people looked at that and said, okay, that is not what we want. And even having a cab, when I was in Brazil, I had a conversation with one of the cab drivers. And the cab driver had been in Brazil, I think, for like 50 years, I think he said. He was Israeli. And he made the point of saying, yeah, we need BB back. He said it was atrocious that they basically joined with the air parties in order to get rid of him the first time around. And part of that was he was corrupt. They didn't necessarily want to form a government with him when he was under investigation. So all of that is no longer an issue now. And is that just because the people are basically looking for security? From their standpoint, Bibi is representative of security. He's representative of a stable figure, a stable hand on a tiller, tiller in the way we say it in the States. Is that what's going on here? Like that basically this is some of a repudiation of the previous government working with the Arab parties, especially with the protests that were taking place. That's most certainly part of it. Um, also, the rise of ultra-nationalists, um, the power of this, I would call them the, sort of the settler bloc, has also played a part in this. But most definitely, the last government, the ruling coalition which was formed, was almost political suicide for everyone who was involved. And Yair Lapid somehow came out of it, you know, not unscathed, but he definitely came out of it uh, still with, you know, his political base behind him, uh, which is interesting, whereas Naftali Bennett completely was pushed out of politics. That's partly because of joining hands with Ram, so the one Arab party which uh, decided to join hands uh, with that Israeli coalition. But, you know, it was a very small part of it. It did have some sway. And Mansour Abbas, who runs that party, has been open to forming a government, for instance, with Netanyahu. I mean, Netanyahu claims that, you know, it's horrible that uh, the so-called left in Israel, which really doesn't exist, and even the Meretz party now didn't even qualify for the Knesset. And uh, the Arabs are forming a coalition against the right to destroy the right. But Netanyahu himself was in discussions with Ram uh, in order to try and form a coalition. Uh, the last coalition that was formed was simply an anti-Netanyahu coalition, and it failed dramatically. Robert, can you can you talk to us a little bit more about uh, what the voting demographic actually looked like? I mean, was the turnout high? Was it low? Uh, was there... Uh, much turnout in young people, and specifically, if you could focus on the Arab vote in Israel. Well, this is an interesting one when it comes to uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel and the way that they voted in lower numbers than I think people expected. That's what we're hearing. Um, the overall voter turnout was over 70 percent. Um, it was very high 
some people were putting it uh, earlier on that it would reach as high as uh, was in 1999. Others uh, said that uh, 2015. Um, so it's a very high voter turnout, especially from the Jewish population. And the result of that has been that uh, the so-called Israeli left, the Zionist left, has been obliterated. And that religious Zionism, basically these ultra-nationalist religious extremists, have come to be the third largest party in the Knesset. And when this coalition is formed, will be the second most powerful in Knesset. In terms of the Palestinian citizens of Israel, I think there is, you know, a bit of hesitancy to uh, vote. And also the blocks weren't as powerful. The joint list uh, was broken up. And you know, it, 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 there was almost like a protest vote for a group called uh, a party called Balad, which happened, which uh, it didn't even make it into the Knesset. So, yeah, in terms of the Palestinian citizens of Israel, the, the show out and their power in the Knesset really isn't uh, that great this time around. Um, that's partly due to the division, which was caused in the split of the joint list. So, yeah, amongst the Jewish population, a very high turnout and uh, have this uh, ruling coalition, which is going to be awful for Israel internationally. It's international standing, uh, the way that also it interacts with Jewish communities around the world who are uh, more liberal leaning and don't accept the religious extremists, which are going to be part of this coalition. Um, and also, uh, you know, an emotionally driven uh, Israeli uh, regime will be one that uh, the uh, Palestinians, for instance, the Palestinian resistance factions can more readily resist against and uh, take advantage of. Wow. I'm curious, what does this mean for Israel itself? <clears throat> Meaning, like from the standpoint of governance itself, what do you think this is going to mean in regard to like reality on the ground and domestic politics, meaning policy, laws, et cetera. What do you expect? Well, this goes back again to uh, what we spoke about at, at the start, and, and that's that uh, the coalition, you know, it's always been coalitions uh, in Israel. To, it's, it's never been a, a single party that which has won out. So it means that the smaller parties have a lot of sway. In this case, religious Zionism, which would be the second largest party in Knesset will have a massive sway over Netanyahu. And if they choose to walk away, then Netanyahu has no majority anymore. So they can dictate terms. For them, for instance, their policy positions are overhauling the Supreme Court. They want to introduce a death sentence for Palestinians who kill uh, Jews, not the other way around, of course. They want to strip Palestinian citizens of Israel of their citizenship and deport them if they display disloyalty to the state of Israel. Uh, they want to annex the settlements uh, into Israel. And this is a party which has been literally a, a component of it, uh, which is called Jewish Power, headed by Itamar Ben-Gvir, um, has been called by APAC as racist and reprehensible. Um, this is how extreme they are. The uh, the Board of Deputies for British Jews um, in the United Kingdom, uh, when it comes to Bezalel Smotrich, who sort of heads up this alliance, the Religious Zionism Alliance, was told to leave the United Kingdom. And this, again, uh, the Board of Deputies is a massively pro-Israel, pro-Zionist uh, organization over here. But even for APAC and the Board of Deputies, these guys are so incredibly extreme because um, in the case of Itamar Ben-Gvir, um, not only has he been, you know, uh, come into uh, runs with the law in Israel at least 52 times by his own admission for inciting racism, inciting violence, supporting a terrorist organization. Apparently, he had a photo of Baruch Goldstein who massacred 
almost 30 people in the Ibrahimi Mosque in Al-Khalil in his home. He's a settler himself and, and has a home in Kiryat Shimona, which is an Israeli illegal settlement. And, uh, you know, he, he's somebody that advocates expelling Palestinians. Um, he's actually as well good friends with a guy called Ben Zion Gopstein, who used to head his party, but was banned from running for the Knesset because of racism. And he's currently running an organization called Lehava, which is essentially an organization which advocates segregation between Jews and Arabs and a bunch of other things. They're, they're responsible for the uh, death to Arab marches uh, in the streets of Jerusalem, for instance. Itamar Benvir is an extremist, a racist, and it, like in every sense of the word, it, it really is like electing the KKK. Uh, to be the second most powerful organization in the Israeli in the Israeli government. Hey Robert, hey Robert, a, a question for you. So you mentioned uh, specifically about Ben Gavir. So I'm reading that apparently Netanyahu is supposed to be meeting him this afternoon. Um, mm-hmm. w- what do you expect to come from that? And, and as you said, you know, many, especially those in the West. Um, have real issues with Ben Gavir, but I imagine many people there do. But as far as um, his going, his governing coalition, because the talks is that he will be maybe get a cabinet position um, within Netanyahu's government. But what what do you make about that? Like play that out. What do you think about that particular coalition? What would that? What does that mean for Netanyahu's governing majority? Well, it means that Netanyahu will basically be controlled in large part by the likes of Itamar Ben-Vir. If he does get a leading cabinet position, I believe he wants to be in control of security, domestic security. So we'll see exactly what he gets handed. I I can't say what he's going to get. But most uh, certainly he's going to push for a leading cabinet position, which will mean that he'll be in control of the security apparatus or he'll have a say directly on the policies of the Israeli regime. And of course, this is going to you know, cause a lot of backlash uh, internationally. Domestically, though, I mean, in terms of what they're doing, there, there is uh, opposition, of course, uh, to them. But nobody's going to do anything about the, the policies that they want to push through. For instance, Itamar Ben-Vir and the Religious Zionism uh, Alliance they want to uh, give Israeli police and soldiers complete immunity for committing essentially war crimes against Palestinians. Um, so it depends what policies they can push forward and push through, how much they can weaken the Supreme Court as to what impact and effect they have. Uh, Netanyahu, of course, is a shrewd politician. He is very well seasoned and he knows how to play politics. But at this point, he's sort of at the mercy of these extremists. And ultimately, this will mean much more death and destruction for Palestinians in the short term, persecution very likely of Palestinian citizens of Israel, which will lead to uprising very likely um, and an escalation in general. But um, in the short term, yes, it's going to bring more death and destruction. In the long term, I believe this is very, very bad for Israel itself uh, and the existence of Israel uh, at that as well. Let me ask you this. My shout out to the producer for bringing this one up. The, Israel was formed by left wing, let's say groups or the very least groups with this kind of mindset of, um, I want to say, secular. Let's say not basically. Well, I want to say atheistic Jews, per se. How did these guys get so hard to the right 
optimists. I mean, these guys are ultra-nationalists. I mean, these guys are extremely hard right. How did that shift take place? How did you go from this kind of spectrum from the left to the right like this, where they're so far to the right in the context of this particular election? I think this was a natural occurrence because Israel itself, you know, in its early foundations, and you look at Zionism pre-48 as well, was almost an anti-religious movement in many ways. And from so it was not, uh, you know, religious uh, per se. It was about nationalism and creating the new uh, Jew. Basically, that's what it was. And like you pointed out, those with left-leaning politics, I mean, people would call them socialists and communists uh, and the likes. I, I would not describe them as such. And I'd say there's always been, you know, fascist elements within them. Um, and the, these racist undertones have always been there. The problem is, is that for them now is that, OK, well, they're being the, the mask is finally off. All of these policies that they're implementing, when it comes to the Jewish population, it's a different thing entirely. But when it comes to the entirety of the population, including Palestinian citizens of Israel, which make up 20 percent of the populace, uh, in the voting public in, in uh, Israel, then you're looking at a completely different picture. Uh, the Palestinian citizens of Israel up until 1966 were under military law. But basically occupation until they occupied in 1967, the, what are now called the occupied territories, which is uh, East Jerusalem, West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So this, these racist undertones, this hardline nationalism has always been there. And it's the natural growth. Of course, you had to help this along. You had the likes of Netanyahu, the Likud. Uh, which brought this along. You had religious elements. And of course, uh, the religious community is is growing over there. So this is sort of the natural evolution of Zionism um, and the natural evolution of the Israeli regime, because this is what it was founded upon, uh, these sort of ideologies. And of course, they're coming through very strongly now. I mean, the Labour Party is pretty much nothing anymore. This used to be, you know, it used to be Labour Likud. The Labour Party was a major force and factor and of course, like uh, you had the history of and these organizations with, uh, you know, labor union. But there's a lot of myths around Israel and its so-called socialist project and its left leaning politics. If you go back and study its history and its fascist undertones, I mean, this is a, a movement which. Uh, in its earliest stages, had a, a colonial office uh, for colonization, the office of colonization, uh, roughly it was called. You know, this is an organized, uh, this is a movement which in of itself could not have created a state without expelling the native indigenous population and subjugating them. So this is the natural evolution. To put it to a pinpoint, it, it's, it would be interesting to try and pinpoint exactly where this uh, switch happened. Uh, but we know that within the last 20, 30 years that it's swung hard uh, to the right more so. Let me ask you this. You made the point of saying this is bad for Israel. Why is that cab driver wrong? And what I mean by that is he would say Netanyahu is the greatest thing ever, that working with the Palestinians was horrible. I was trying to point out to him, in his mind, he was like, well, Palestinians are equal rights in that country. And I pointed out, I said, well, if they indeed have equal rights, why do you have an issue with them being in the Knesset? I mean, if they are equal, why do you have an issue with those Palestinian groups working with the Israelis in order to form a government? Why do you think or why do you say that this is a bad reality or bad eventuality for Israel currently? This is bad for Israel strategically because you no longer have people who are political people and uh, shrewd politicians who are running the show, people who can, you know, do their business in a deceptive manner. The Labour Party, for <laughs> instance, of Israel. 
The Labour Party of Israel uh, built more settlements than Likud, percentage-wise. Uh, the Labour Party had, uh, you know, you go back into the, the history and uh, you look at their leading figures and politicians. They've all had, you know, very similar policies and positions towards the Palestinians. And they've gotten away with worse acts against the Palestinians when you have these people who can speak in moderate language. But when it comes down to the persecution of Palestinians, it's exactly the same. So they get away with more things. But when you have these extremists now, not just people who are on the right, that's not uh, like uh, the, the problem for them. Netanyahu can run his regime very well. He's uh, very smart as a politician. But when it comes to these emotional extremist activists who truly believe everything they're saying about Palestinians being uh, unequal, um, about segregation, about expulsion, we're dealing with people who are activists. We're dealing with people who are, for Israel now, if it goes too far, will isolate Israel from the international community, which is really when we talk about the international community, we talk about the West to a certain extent. And it will, most importantly, provoke a reaction in the West Bank with the Palestinian Authority, because the Palestinian Authority, led by President Mahmoud Abbas, unelected President Mahmoud Abbas, doesn't have the ability to turn around and go, Yair Lapid is talking in the UN about possibly two states, never going to entertain actually doing anything about it. But look, he's talking, look, they're giving us money. And you know, the PA is thriving. They don't have that anymore. Itamar Ben-Gvir and these types don't want to even talk to the PA. They don't want to help the PA and build the PA. They see the PA as the enemy. In reality, the PA is actually their ally. The PA is enabling them to do what they're doing in the West Bank. The PA is managing the domestic security situation of the Palestinians. And if they don't have the PA, then the Israeli army has to deploy into the major city centers to manage the Palestinians. And the PA police and security apparatus are going to turn around and turn their guns on the Israelis. So the destruction of the PA, if that comes, it's just a matter of time at this point. But if the PA falls, it's chaos for Israel in the West Bank. And at the moment, we're looking at a situation where all the leading human rights organizations call Israel an apartheid regime. Amnesty International, uh, Human Rights Watch, uh, B'Tselem, Israel's top human rights organization. Of course, all the Palestinian human rights organizations, Al-Haq, perhaps the most influential, the oldest human rights organization in the region. So they're very much isolated. They're swinging to this fundamentalist extremist, not only rhetoric, uh, but policies and the Israeli public as well, a large portion of them, uh, are supporting this. And so the more extreme they get, the more isolated they become, the more extreme they get, the easier it is for the Palestinian side to win strategic battles against them. Um, and it's very likely that the PA will eventually collapse. Well, Robert, this year, 2022, is the, I would say, I think it's the deadliest year in in many years and that there's a fear that there might be a second intifada in the in the uh, brewing, right? And especially with uh, Bibi coming back to power, what does that do to the likelihood of a potential intifada? It makes it very possible. Um, at the at this moment, I, I would say that it is an intifada. The only difference here is that unlike uh, the second intifada, which was the one before, this intifada 
is not it doesn't have the backing of the Palestinian Authority. In fact, the Palestinian Authority are arresting those who are attempting to lead it. They're arresting people in Birzeit University, where the Second Intifada started from the students. They're arresting members of the Palestinian armed groups, which are forming again, which are completely independent, which are formed of young people. So if the Netanyahu government decides to crack down and persecute uh, the Palestinian authority, then this will play a major role. I mean, the Palestinian authority will have two choices. Either you're going to face a revolt, either a popular one by the people, which are going to try and overthrow you, or within the Palestinian authority itself, there's there's already many divisions within the ruling Fatah party, or you're going to have to turn your guns on the Israelis and you're going to have to endorse an intifada. And this is what they will be faced with. Um, It's readily turning into that situation. It is the beginning of an intifada. The only thing stopping the intifada is the Palestinian authority. That's it. Otherwise, this, yeah, this is an intifada. There are attacks every single day. There's armed groups popping up every single day, mass popular protests every single day. Um, It never stops. The Israelis are... uh, you know, imposing curfews, uh, locking down uh, and besieging entire uh, cities and villages and massive arrest uh, campaigns are on the way. Assassinations by airstrikes. They're using anti-tank munitions, special forces and undercover units to assassinate people in broad daylight. Uh, It's an absolute mess in the West Bank at the moment. Uh, More people have died in the West Bank this year than Gaza. And there was a war on Gaza. Hey, Hey, Robert. Robert, you mentioned, um, just quickly, you mentioned the PA and obviously um, what has the impact of lions in? Because I was doing some reading and I know that PA has apparently offered some protection for Lions Den's group members if they turn themselves in. But what has been the impact of the Lions Den? You talked about independent groups being formed because this is a very new group. This is a very new group. It started on September the 2nd this year. And what's special about them is they have no political faction in which they align themselves with. They're completely independent, which reflects really the younger generation and their moods. They, they're not into factionalism anymore, uh, the younger generation. They're not like uh, those that came before them. They're fed up and tired of all these factions competing against each other. So when it comes to the lion's den, it's a growing organization, a growing group. It's carried out a successful attack against an Israeli soldier. Um, It survived a uh, major operation that Israel planned to uh, destroy them in the old city of Nablus. And one thing to track with it and to note about it is that it actually has major popular support in the way that, for instance, the PFLP, Hamas, uh, the Fatih party, when they call people to come out to the streets and, and to protest, They don't have the sort of control which the lion's den has. And this is just a band of young people with guns who don't really have a command and control structure who are just resisting. And they're brave men and they have many people that have been killed and assassinated by Israel. And they have more power to bring people to the streets at specific times in the West Bank than any of these major political parties. That doesn't mean that they could win an election, for instance, but they have a lot of power symbolically. And so the Palestinian Authority want to buy them up like they did with all of the other factions towards the end of the Second Intifada. And they've said, no, um, you can't buy us because we're here. With, our, our aim is to either win or to be martyred. So you can't defeat that. And the Palestinian Authority are learning the hard way. Wow. So all things been equal. This, where are they getting the guns from, by the way? I mean, who's supporting the group itself? I'm just curious. 
Well, who's supporting the group is difficult to tell. Israel has alleged that Hamas gave them a million dollars. It's not really that much. The, the weapons are readily available in the West Bank. There's a lot of weapons in the West Bank. And, you know, there's people have stored weapons as well mm -hmm. uh, for a lo very long time. You can smuggle them in, buy them from indirectly from soldiers. Um, but they've only got light weapons at the moment. Um, so it's just guns, basically. Wow. But all things being equal from the standpoint of force on the ground, those groups have gotten sick of, I guess, these other factional groups that don't necessarily seem to be making headway, in which case this is kind of being expressed through the anger of these younger groups. Robert, thank you for this, man. I appreciate the breakdown and what's going on. Like I said, I was abroad. I was shocked when I saw Netanyahu's name pop back up. And maybe I shouldn't have been shocked. <laughs> he's, he's always around. Oh, by the way, before, you, before we close, the criminal investigations and everything else that was going on with Netanyahu, those are paused once again now that he's prime minister, correct? Yeah, I mean, th this is a process that will go on for years and years and years. And I, I mean, it's not even been brought up. Yeah. Recently. Nobody's even talking about it. Robert, we're going to have to close it here. That's amazing. Uh, Robert Inkalesh. I want to thank Inkalesh. In, in, in Lakesh. There you go. Thank you. I appreciate you joining us. He's a journalist, writer, and political analyst who's lived in and reported from the Occupy Palestinian West Bank. He's written for publications such as Met Press, Mondo Ice, Memo, and various other outlets. He specializes in analysis of the Middle East, in particular, Palestine and Israel. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for that, man. You wow. always do the ink. You want to say ink. Oh, for like, some reason, I want to say ink. Like a pen ink. Right, but it's in Lakesh. In Lakesh. In Lakesh. Um, but look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Manila Chan, we're joined by Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Right on. Fascinating take on what is yeah. taking place. And, and don't forget, let's not oh, forget. Oh, yeah. And we're joined Our with Malik Abdul. Guest co-host Malik Abdul, Malik Atomic MAGA. Yes. It's Atomic MAGA. Jamal, I meant to tell you, um, great monologue. And <laughs> every time you say, um, you ask a question, which is a reasonable question, why is it that, um, you know, the people who moved from yeah, Obama to why Trump, does 30% leave? I mean, that's every, a... Every, every time you say that, I say to myself, yeah, you're looking at yeah. because I was that person. Yeah. And whenever I, it doesn't matter how. The question is damning, by yeah. the way. But the thing is, is that I've tried over the years to explain that mm -hmm. to people. Um, and what is that? Your proximity to whiteness, apparently. <laughs> but, but, but that, that is typically, there were, it, it's such a refusal to understand because they try to put me in a box. Yes. Said, well, you're one of those. Right. And then it's like, no, I don't. I, I voted for Obama twice. Yeah, same here. I, and, I voted for Obama and, twice. And it really was a thing in 2021. It's like, how could you, how could you, and not necessarily um, January 6th, but it was how could you, how could you, it was about the vaccine. Right. And then when I say, well, I, I took the vaccine. Yeah. I got the vaccine. Yeah. And then it's, well, <laughs> I, still don't, I still don't they understand. They don't know what to do with you. So yeah. it doesn't matter how 
you know, reasonable. I tried to be in explaining how I could come from yeah. the head of the Obama nation to Atomic MAGA. It doesn't matter how I've tried to They don't explain. get it. They don't want to get it. Yeah, they don't get it. I mean, you try to make the point of, look, look I've, I've known people who were very clear on the Democratic side. They said I can never vote for a Republican. And years later, they were like, I'm sick of that party. Like, and it was boiled down to the things that we require for a particular um, society that they're not getting. And they have this belief that, meaning they don't they don't expect Republicans to give them anything. Those that's kind of the way African Americans are. Yeah. Um, but they do have expectation of Democrats. Right. And the issue is, are those expectations they being delivered. met? They don't deliver. They haven't delivered. Part. And, and it is the realization that that's happening. And it took me living not just in D.C. but you know on on the east of the river. Yeah. D.C. to realize that everything that when I was a Democrat, people were saying, well, this is what should, you know, Republicans are terrible at. And I looked at what was happening in my own community and I say, well, Republicans don't have anything to do with this. Right. I have to say, Malik, you inspired me this weekend to uh, my my viewing choice. Uh huh. I got to admit, I watched a I guess it's a documentary. It was annoying because it was in literally filmed in black and white. Right. Which was like, <laughs> right. It takes a while to get you to get over that. Right. Come on. Uh, called Uncle, not Uncle Sam, Uncle Tom. Oh, Uncle right. Tom. <laughs> I'd heard. Have you have you heard of that? Of course. Documentary? You've heard of it? Well, not the documentary, no, but the I know documentary. what Uncle Tom is. Yeah. But the, the documentary. So I watched it and I was like, huh. So this is what the stuff that Malik was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I know the director, um, well, reached out to me when they oh. were. Did he? Yeah, to be in the movie. Oh, no, I didn't accept it. No. Okay, yeah. See, I don't know what the movie is. I mean, I know what it's the term is. It's about the black means. community going conservative. Like. Oh, I see. So it's that okay. type of thing, but, you know, because of the people, you know, I'm going to attach my name to certain things, and that just wasn't. That's not going to be one I of those like, days, yeah. There are certain purposes I'll fulfill. This well, one is yeah, not that ain't one let's of them. Let's carry on that conversation <laughs> after we do yeah. some headlines, because we have an open mic segment. We do. Which is pretty cool. We do. Well, yeah. Yes. We're going to talk about the midterms and everything else. Um, And we're probably going to get into this Atlantic piece that I've had the opportunity to go through where she's like, look, let's just let's just call it all even. (laughs) Lady, let's let's get rid of the scorecard. Yeah, let's just call it all even. We're we're good now, right? Um, But yeah, let's get to the headlines because I get the feeling that we're not all good. (laughs) I get that strong feeling that that article that people are going to tell her to go F herself. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, well, look, let's get into headlines. In the news, former U.S. President Donald Trump said on Sunday he doubts the country could survive two remaining years of President Joe Biden's term, alluding to the failures of his administration. Quote, this country, I don't know if it's going to live for another two years. What's happening? So you've got to get out there and vote for this man, referring to Republican candidate, Dr. Oz. He's a good man, unquote. Trump said at a campaign rally in Pennsylvania ahead of the upcoming midterm elections, Trump stressed that the United States has, quote, never been so bad as it is now, unquote, noting Washington's weakening standing in the world. Quote, it's never been in this position. We're not respected any place. It is amazing that we love each other. We have such a good time. And yet its subject is so negative. There's nothing good to say about what's happening in our country, unquote, Trump said. Why is Trump downing America? Why is Trump downing America? The wild part about this is I can't necessarily say that Donald Trump is entirely wrong in this statement, especially at the very end. It's never been in this position. We've never not respected. I don't know about that part. It's amazing that we love each other, blah, blah, blah. There's nothing good to say about what's happening in the country right now. The issue is, yes, you can say what's happening in the country. I would argue that the issue is more so about this notion of us whistling past the graveyard. To take a quote from um, Sean Blackman on, on Biden means necessary. 
the things that we are doing in Ukraine and the levels and the degree to which we are getting closer and closer to the brink of destruction without the president of the United States, A, having an honest conversation with the public about what's taking place. But for that matter, not even that, the honest conversation, the pushing, the continuously pushing. At what point does the U.S. relent? And for that matter, does the U.S. relent before it gets to the point of oblivion? Jake Sullivan was in um, Washington, uh, I'm sorry, was in Kiev having a conversation and the Washington Post is basically saying that he wants to give the appearance of having talks without necessarily pushing Ukraine to talks. Maybe you should push Ukraine to talks. Let's keep going. President Joe Biden said on Sunday that the price of gasoline at the pump is currently $3.19 a gallon, which is almost 20% lower than the figures of the American Automobile Association, which publishes daily U.S. gas price. Quote, right now, the most common price at the gas station across the country is $3.19 a gallon. That's progress, unquote, Biden said on Twitter. However, the association's Sunday data showed that the average gas price stood at $3.80 a gallon. 19% more than what was announced by the president. According to AAA figures, out of all U.S. gas states, only two, Texas and Georgia, where the price was below $3.20. Apparently, Joe Biden found one gas station with the price being low and basically ran with it. Let's keep going. The Biden administration is privately encouraging Kiev to demonstrate a readiness to negotiate with Moscow, Washington Post report citing people familiar with the discussions. The newspaper said on Saturday that Washington does not want Ukraine to start negotiations with Russia, but instead aims to ensure that Kiev has the support of other countries. Quote, Ukraine fatigue is a real thing for some of our partners, unquote, one U.S. official said. According to the newspaper, concerns about mounting in parts of Europe, Africa, and Latin America as food and fuel prices are rising amid Russia's ongoing special operation in Ukraine. At some point, it's not a special operation. At some point, it's just the war. And look, all things been equal. They're saying their issue from that article was more so the optics of it all. That Ukraine basically saying, we will not negotiate. Well, it looks bad, especially it looks bad since it doesn't necessarily seem like you have the capacity to win on the ground and Europe is taking a hit. Other countries are paying more for items that they were getting for much cheaper. And yeah, it becomes an issue, right? If you have all of these protests that were taking place in either Germany or France or some of these other countries because of the issue of inflation or, for that matter, food prices or, for that matter, gas prices, how long can those governments keep this up without, at some point, people hitting their heads on the idea that it's the war and it's the support of that war? Keep in mind, that war doesn't exist. That war doesn't perpetuate itself without the United States dumping massive amounts of money to keep the Ukraine government going. If it wasn't for U.S. support, that war would basically be over with. We are keeping a proxy conflict going. And we don't necessarily want to settle because we don't necessarily want Russia to get a win. I hate to tell you this, from the Russian standpoint, it's existential. And all things been equal, Russia will get its win. They don't have a choice but to. The question is whether or not NATO is going to accept that and how far NATO is willing to go, bringing this world to the brink of oblivion. Let's keep going. Piper Lewis, who recently turned 18, pleaded guilty to stabbing Zachary Brooks 37 over 30 times after being forced into sex trafficking through the threat of violence when she was 15 years old. The Iowa teen, who was sentenced to five years of closely supervised probation for killing the alleged rapist, has escaped custody at the woman's facility and was housed in on Friday, according to local media. Lewis said she found herself homeless and living in a halfway I'm sorry, in a hallway on an apartment building in Des Moines, Iowa, after running away from her adopted mother, who Lewis said was abusive. The 28-year-old man who eventually took her in and forced her into sex trafficking. In 2020, after she said she was drugged and repeatedly raped by Brooks, 
Lewis admitted to killing Brooks in a, quote, fit of rage, unquote. President Joe Biden seemed to have acknowledged that Republicans possibly taking over Congress in next week's midterm election may lead him to being impeached. In an address to the supporters in San Diego, Biden said he was, quote, already being told if the GOP members win back the House of Senate or Senate and Senate, they're going to impeach him. Quote, I don't know what the hell they're going to impeach me for. I'm not joking. Recently, they said we should stop talking about it till we win. He added. So Joe Biden is now screaming that he is going to be impeached. I have no idea what they're going to impeach him for either, but we will see if Biden is right. Because I truly believe Republicans are definitely going to take the House, and I suppose the Senate is up. Oh, thank you, Vanilla. I suppose the Senate is up on a thread or on a string. Let's keep going. The Russian bots and trolls blamed for former President Donald Trump's 2016 election victory. Think about that for the moment. We're saying that Russian bots who apparently... uh, um, articles or let's say a troll farm that was taking place before or let's say most of those ads took place after the election more than half took place after the election beat hillary clinton's billion dollar campaign not to mention clinton had her own five million dollar troll army but nobody wants to talk about that but totally um a troll farm that was taking place with the majority of the ads taking place after the election totally got trump elected okay the russian bots and trolls blamed for former president donald trump's 2016 election victory have reportedly returned to u.s social media platforms ahead of next week's midterm election the new york times claimed on sunday that they're focusing their discord sewing disinformation promoting attacks on alternative networks like Gab and Parler, citing researchers from Recorded Future, Mandiant, and Graphica. Questionable accounts believed to be linked to Russian troll farm, internet research agency, are targeting conservatives ahead of Tuesday's midterm elections, and researchers said, hitting familiar themes like voter fraud, voter fraud, Democrats' perceived leniency on crime and administration blank check to Ukraine, transgender children, and other hot-button issues. And like Manila said, so issues that Republicans were bringing up in general, all of a sudden are now Russian pro-farms. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it's like Republicans are bringing these issues up and it just so happened that the issues that Republicans are bringing up are the same issues that these, quote, pro-farms are bringing up. Okay, sure, sure, Democrats. Sure. The United States is tired of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and will stop supporting him as soon as Washington no longer needs it. Quote, its puppet, unquote, in Kiev, Lioran Philippot, leader of French Patriots, said on Sunday, quote, the American government is starting to get tired of Zelensky and is asking him to negotiate with Russia. When the U.S. no longer needs his puppet, they would get rid of him as always. Philippot said on Twitter definitively said with an exclamation point behind the statement. Right on. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg said on Saturday that the chance of Russia using nuclear weapons in Ukraine was small, though the bloc was taking the issue seriously. The risk that Russia would use nuclear weapons in Ukraine was low, but the alliance was very serious about it, as the consequences of a nuclear attack would be devastating, Stoltenberg told Turkish NTV broadcaster, adding that Russia's position on the use of nuclear arms remained unchanged. The Secretary General added that NATO wanted to make clear that it would be no winners in a nuclear war as he condemned Russia for, quote, irresponsible and dangerous behavior. Yeah, but egging on a war is not dangerous behavior. Okay, sure. The Syrian Air Force, in response to an attack on militants in a Jihadi al-Nusra terrorist group on positions of government forces in, the, well, I think this is Latakia, destroyed a militant training camp, said Major General Oleg Yegorov, deputy head of the Russian Defense Ministry's Center for 
uh, reconciliation of opposing sides in Syria. Quote, as a result of the attack, a training camp of militants and underground shelters of illegal armed groups in the area of the settlement of Ashkani, Tuscany, were destroyed. 93 militants were killed, including field commanders. 135 members of the terrorist group were seriously injured. Yegorov told the briefing. Yegorov added that the Air Force destroyed a drone assembly workshop and up to 40 strike drones preventing terrorist attacks against the Russian armed forces and Syrian government forces. This day in history, in 1917, the October Revolution in Russia, Lenin and the Bolsheviks seized power, captured the Winter Palace, and overthrew the provisional government. In 1931, Chinese People's Republic proclaimed Mao Zedong. In 2000, controversial U.S. presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore is inconclusive. The result, Bush's favor, is eventually resolved by the Supreme Court. Or is it resolved? There are a lot of Democrats who say that's not resolved, but okay. In 2020, former Vice President Joe Biden declared the winner of the U.S. presidential race four days after the U.S. election, defeating sitting President Donald Trump. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan. So let's go into a break. We're going to come back. We're going to discuss the election itself, since that's going to be tomorrow. Um, big story. Big story, to put it mildly. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM, 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We'll try to get you at 845 or for that matter, 945. But I want to get into the election stuff because that's going to be tomorrow. That's going to be the, the big Russians news. The Russians did it. <laughs> I know, right? Whoever, whoever if Republicans win, the Russian bots had to have be had to be responsible for it. it. I mean, it, how stupid is this? I mean, can we? The idea. The Democrats have run on this, JT, for six years. Yes, if you six think about years. it, they said issues of climate change were the Russian bots. They said anybody who cared about police violence was the Russian bots. The African-Americans were so stupid that Russian bots were able to get them to think about things that Democrats didn't necessarily care about. Yeah, astonishing stuff. Gas is up. Gas is up in Russia. Russian bots, of course, Russian bots are complaining about the gas. Americans don't really care about gas prices. They don't care about inflation. They don't care about food prices. They quietly ignore the proven fact that they got reprimanded pre-Elon Musk on Twitter for the DOD having... Bots. Yes. Having troll farms. Think about that. Think about that. I mean, now to me, that was Nobody of talks course. about it, though. I know, but that was an of course. I mean, to American, me, it was like, ours. it was the most obvious thing in the world that our military or various elements would be, would use social media as a way of trying to drive opinion in a particular are area. trolls, JT. And we're not supposed to talk about there our trolls. There are trolls. We American gotta love bots. our trolls. Yeah. And then they try to call people Russian bots, which was ridiculous. They had, I forget her name. 
she comes on the show every so often, but she they called her a Russian bot. She was sitting in Australia thing, and they was like, are you a Russian bot? She says, no, I'm not oh, a Russian Syrian bot. Syrian girl. Yeah, Syrian girl. She was like, I'm not a Russian bot. I'm real. I'm an Australian citizen, Had and yet person. they were called her a Russian bot. Um, I want to get into the election for a moment. Let's play this clip. This is Trump going after DeSantis. Let's play the clip. We're winning big, big, big in the Republican Party for the nomination like nobody's ever seen before. Let's see. There it is. Trump at 71. Ron DeSanctimonious at 10 percent. Now, I'm going to go to Malik. I don't get that. I don't, Ron Sanctimonious? Yeah, like, why did he bash him? Malik? <laughs> why, is, why is Big Papa... <laughs> Big Papa's coming in with a broom, trying to clean the clean the clean the uh, the threshold before he, DeSantis even walks across it. Now, what is it? Is it just he thinks that DeSantis he sees is DeSantis as a, as a threat? threat? People are talking about Ron DeSantis as absent Trump, yeah. the heir apparent to the White House. And Big Papa doesn't like that, and he does not like that because not only are there t- are they talking about Ron DeSantis as a viable. Um, contender for 2024, what they're saying is that he's a better Donald Trump. So it is interesting. Yeah, so more it Trump is, than Trump? More is Trump that what they're saying? Well, um, no, not more Trump than Trump. A that better he's a better Trump. Trump in that he doesn't have the social media, the nastiness. And mm-hmm. so all of the negatives yeah. associated with Donald Trump. He does not have. But he doesn't have the positives either. No, he doesn't. Which is like the name recognition. I am one of those. I've said many times before, I think that Ron DeSantis peaked too early. Um, The things that Ron DeSantis is famous for, um, known for, really, it's because he was in opposition to let's say an Andrew Cuomo. So the the media needed the media needed a uh, a foil. Right. And so you had Andrew Cuomo the, at the time, the mm-hmm. responsible governor. Because remember, he was America's governor. That's right. At was, the time. He was nailing COVID. He wrote the book. This is how I got rid of COVID. Trump. He got the Emmy. Bring me, bring <laughs> he got an me Emmy. Definitely mercy. not groping women right. in his office. <laughs> right. Definitely not. And remember, during that time, Trump, bring me mercy the naval ship uh-huh. to New York right. City. Because... And Trump did all of that. So Ron DeSantis was the opposite. He was the irresponsible Republican Disney, governor. Disney World's open. Down, killing people down there. He got the be- those horrible beaches in Florida. Yeah. He left them open because, you know, outside. Yeah, people were catching COVID left and right outside in the beach. Let, right. let me contrast that to my go- home governor well, in California. California. Newsom. That's right. Newsom shut down the beaches. Shut down everything. He filled, he took sand from the beaches and filled up the skate parks because we have a sure skating as a big sure skateboarding. Did. What? He yes. took sand and filled the skate park. In order to keep people from skating? skateboarding. Keep people out. Don't get out there and be active and be out in the beautiful California sunshine he all year. He did that. Yes. He went that he far. He filled that up far. skate parks. He went that far. Oh, that's bitter. So Ron DeSantis. <laughs> that's so wrong. That's so wrong. So Ron DeSantis kind of became, a, he has a, almost like a cult following is what I say. Yeah. Now, if you look at Ron, what Ron DeSantis did from a governing um, perspective, Ron DeSantis didn't do anything that surpasses, for instance, a Brian Kemp. Yeah. Because while Ron DeSantis was doing, you know, critical race theory or the, the don't say gay bill and all of this type of thing that people were focused on, you had um, Brian Kemp, who was also had a tit with Major League Baseball because this was around um, the voting rights bill that they right. did down there. You know, so I think that there are other Republicans around the country who, Republican governors around the country, Mike DeWine is going to have a 
wallop of a uh, race um, against his Democrat contender. Other Republicans are doing well. Ron DeSantis is the sexy person right right now, but I'm not convinced that Ron DeSantis, for one, is the person who can ultimately win. But Donald Trump is going to try to take him out at knees first. That's amazing to me. Because Donald Trump, I mean— on some level, so He's correct me if I'm wrong. Donald Trump considers, looks at DeSantis as being, I made his political career. Yeah. Yes. And so he looks at it as, okay, he is not flaming out for me. Like, meaning, does Donald Trump expect DeSantis to basically, look, sit down if I'm running? Yes. Is it that? Yes. Yeah. And, said, and that people are talking about DeSantis in very positive ways in contrast to, Trump. to Donald Trump. Is DeSantis going to beat Chris, Charlie Chris? Yes. Yeah. Oh, he's yeah. going to crush him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw, I saw Chris on the other day basically trying to make the argument about why he should yeah, win. Yeah, he's already leading. I think the average is he's leading by maybe 10 or so points. DeSantis, um, keep in mind, Ron DeSantis beat Andrew Gillum by about two, one or two percentage points. very close. Yeah, maybe about one percentage point, a little over one percentage point yeah. um, in 2018 or whenever their race was. Um, so that was already a close race. It's not going to be anywhere no, close with Chris. And because Chris was already a flawed candidate, he was the Republican governor. Then turned, turned to a Democrat. Ran as an independent uh-huh. for Senate first. Then when he didn't win as an independent, he decided to run as a congressman. He won as a Democrat congressman who's now running for— So yeah, his stuff was just all— all the place. Yeah. It was kind of like Beto. Yeah. That just means to me— Because, you know, you know Beto's, you know, they're still running, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, nobody even talks about (laughs) With as much flip-flopping as that guy has done, what that shows me, I mean, I'm obviously not a Florida voter, but what that shows me with that amount of flip-flopping for every seat that becomes available to him, right? He's going to look for it. It means he wants power. It means he wants power. (laughs) Not that he actually cares or has, like, any real true intentions to do anything. I'm one of those people. They're not principles. That's not a lot of principles. I firmly believe that when people want a Republican, they vote a Republican, they don't vote somebody who's flip-flops. Right. Meaning they want somebody who know who they are. And, and, and I think way, it's a, even it's if a it's big flawed. difference in you're being a member of a party for a while and over the course of, you know— You certain, change, yeah. It's like this, this party like, left me, that type of stuff. Charlie Chris, like, within five years. Yeah, it was like, close. you did all of this. <laughs> Back and forth. So give me your breakdown. You, you know this stuff far better than I do. Give me the breakdown of how you think this is going to fly, meaning the electoral stuff itself when um, the, everything pans out. I suspect the Republicans are going to take it. I mean, and I'm, I'm taking that assessment just from looking at where's the American public, where's their head right. versus where are the party's head and what are they focusing on. Republicans seem to be a pulse of the nation in regards to what the public is talking about or what they mm-hmm. care about. Whereas when you look at Democrats and the public make their assessment of Democrats, that stuff is not even on the list. You know what? And so, Ken, but before I even answer that, and when we talked about it when you were here, um, and it's worth talking about it again because I was listening and I believe it's actually Pennsylvania yeah. who will, their absentee ballots have to be counted by the 17th or some, like, Two weeks out. You know, after the election. Yeah, after the election. So the, my point is um, we were talking about how there does need to be certain standards. Of course there should be standards. To there should be national vote. standards. Yeah. Like, there is no reason that in some states you – the app, in, even in some states – you, can, you, you have to wait until the day of the election to count the election. But in some states you can't do it until after 3 o'clock. 
So, I mean, like, that's so aggravating. It just standardized the election. Right. Yeah. It's Meanwhile, a in election. Brazil, yeah. they have compulsory elections. Compulsory elections. You <laughs> better vote or else. <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah, standardize the elections. I don't see the issue with standardizing the elections. Yeah, I mean, things. I hate this idea that the states can monkey around. With the electoral stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, this place is going to have it where they're going to have lines that are eight hours long. This other place is going to be able to shut down polling locations. This other place is going to hate that stuff. No, no ballot boxes here. Yeah. But you can have ballot boxes in this state. Yeah, it's like you have early absentee voting here, but not in this particular location. It, it should be a standard, and it shouldn't matter in which state you are. Like Delaware, the first, so Delaware now, Biden's home state, they now have early voting as a part that's, in their law. Right. They didn't have early voting before prior to 2020. Right. Many, but many states didn't. It's right. not as if, you know, certain like these, some of the larger um, states obviously had early voting, but yeah. many places didn't have yeah. early voting ballot boxes. D.C. didn't have ballot boxes. But they should have those things. And that election shouldn't be held on a Tuesday. Right. I mean, yeah, like that's... the idea, like you work at, I don't know, Starbucks. And they say, okay, you have to vote during this time, but you have to be to work at six Some in the morning. And you're working all day. Have, right, lines for like eight hours. Yes, we right. saw. Like, that should is, not happen. That right. should never no be the case. No one should wait in line that long to vote. To vote. I mean, because imagine what takes place. It's like, oh God, do I really want to wait in line to vote? Is my vote going to matter that much anyway? What am I going to get out? Those people leave. Well, here's the thing. This country is still stuck in the 19th century where we based everything around the farmer's almanac. Now, Malik yeah. and I talked about, yeah, the, about, the, about right. the time the the time change, right? We yeah. just had it yesterday, right? right? The time changed. And unless that's, you're in Arizona. Right, unless you're in Arizona, <laughs> which was very confusing to me when I was oh, in Arizona. Oh, Arizona doesn't have the no. time change? Oh, okay. So that's also not a federal thing as well. It's yeah. a state-adopted thing. Aren't they getting weird. rid of that? There no so the Sunshine the Act bill. so now <laughs> it's ha- stalled up. It's called the Sunshine Act. Uh-huh. Then it sped through it, and they're all like, "Yeah, yeah, get this damn thing out of here." But why? Why? I and mean, now Congress is holding it up. So now they're like, "Oh, but there's it's like in the health, house. health, yeah. Im- yeah, house is holding it up." They're like, oh, but there's health impacts, and then we have to figure out like it'll be dark in voting. It'll be. Di- it- just all kinds of random it's silly stuff. Yeah, I don't know. It's silly stuff. But, but this this but impact voting, about, just all um, kinds of crazy. Like the, the layout. So um yes, Republicans are definitely gonna take the house mm-hmm. that we only need four. That's it. We only need four. four and so four to be majority. Four right. to be but majority. But they need the su- they want a super majority. Yeah, yeah of course they so do. Th- of that's course. gonna happen. The question is what's happening in the Senate. The no interesting chance thing, of the Senate looks though. like it's a barely like, it could go either so way. So the interesting thing about the Senate is Senate and the House, if you will. Remember, there was some discussion during the primary about how Democrats were funding Republican candidates yes, who they didn't right. want. It's like, the, this way go win. Man, I was like, that guy's nuts. Fun that guy. Yep. <laughs> I want to run against the crazy so, guy. Even yeah. though they didn't, run, they didn't run campaigns against Carrie Lake, uh-huh. Carrie Lake has benefited from the popularity of Democrats attacking her. Interesting. So she's now she's now in a tight race with Katie Hobbs. So it's a possibility that Katie Hobbs will I mean that Carrie Lake will win. If Carrie Lake wins, there's another possibility that then there will be some um, down ballot success. I'm not convinced people are believing that Blake Masters out of Arizona is ultimately going to beat the incumbent Senator Mark Kelly. Yeah. I'm not convinced by that. You think Kelly's going to take it? Or yeah, keep I it. think Kelly's going to take that. Nevada, there's no poll over the past, I believe, month has said that um, the Democrat uh, Catherine Cortez Masto is leading. Yeah. So Republicans seems to be poised to pick up a seat, meaning flip. 
Mm-hmm. Flip a seat. Yeah. Flip a seat. Yeah. So if Republicans flip. If they get one. That's one the Senate. Flip. Right. They only flip. need one. So yeah, one her, which yeah. means that Herschel Walker can lose. And they still and take fine. the Senate. But the question is, Pennsylvania. What happens Dr. with Dr. Oz? That's Oz, right? That's the Dr. Because Oz, yes. Oz is running against Fetterman, Fetterman right. for Pat Toomey's seat. Pat Toomey is a Republican. Uh-huh. So if Oz does not win, then that means that's, that's the a seat that the other Democrats way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they may be able to hold on. The fact that in Arizona, the Black Masters is pretty much coming up neck and neck. Yeah. With He's closed the gap. He's closed the gap. Like out of nowhere the, in the final stretch, Mark Kelly should be just walloping him. That's what I was going to say. Should Mike be Kelly, mopping and he was. With him. He so was. what happened? Don't know. Well, there was a, it, think of the national discussion that was happening around the country. Right. So immigration, mm-hmm. crime, inflation. And Kelly is bad. Like, so he can't make the Democrat. argument on those things. Right. So it doesn't matter oh, I what me. Yeah. Okay, back when you're I was angering in Arizona. Got, you're running against a Democrat. It yeah. was a red, it, a was, it was very much a, a John McCain red state right? yes. when I was anchoring, you know, a decade ago back in Arizona. It was very much a red state, an open mm-hmm. carry state. It was a very it's very different than apparently what it looks like right now, which is kind of purplish, right. like you said. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of Californians. There and was an exodus that yeah. moved to Arizona Texas and also. kind of and tech. Right. Californians have started filter infiltrating right. into red <laughs> right. states. I'll right. call right. it that. Right. right? And have purplized a lot of districts to Biden. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it is very crazy. So that race between Masters and Kelly, super close now. Yeah, which nobody saw that coming. So the the rise of Blake Masters. So I I don't know. But can I switch gears to the other hot topic? Go for it. The Atlantic article piece of bring, COVID, bring, it, bring us in COVID amnesty. <laughs> bring us in because that. that's another patchwork quilt that we saw in various red states, uh-huh. right? Uh, since we're talking... And just so the article, the article is yes. named, Let's Declare Pandemic Amnesty. Pandemic Amnesty. Let's focus so on the future the and fix the problems we still about? need to solve. Right. So long story short, and let, let me just paraphrase this Atlantic article. It's basically a, a Brown University, a lady, a Brown University professor, uh-huh. who's basically writing this op-ed for The Atlantic, and she she was, uh, it seems pretty evident to me, I don't think, I don't recall her identifying herself as a liberal, but... Yeah, she I, sounds like a liberal. It's pretty clear to me that she's a liberal. Yeah. Right? And she has small school-age children, more or less around my son's age, which is frightening because she talks about this in her article, mm-hmm. about basically she instilled so much fear into her preschool age child that when they were walking on a trail outside in the great outdoors, right? That her her preschool age child yelled at another kid that got close to him, social distance. No way. Social distance. Oh, see, I didn't get to that part. No. Yes. I just thought reading that part stood out to me because, you know, it, it sounds like I don't know her age or, you know, but it sounds like we're probably the fear of God in close that kid. in age. Yeah. Our children are close in age. So I figure this woman's around my age and she sounds very, very, you know, left, right? Yes. She was, she's basically asking for no more scorecards, everybody. Everybody that got it wrong about COVID, got it wrong about the, the vaccines, got it wrong about the face mask. But you know what? Let's just drop it because we're entering year three. So let's just call a truce. That's yeah. basically what this article says. Right. And so you have a lot of people on the right a lot of people, like potato, libertarians, libertarians are off. like, oh, no, 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 no. Hell no, lady. No, no, no. The damage that was caused by, we just didn't know 
Yeah, you don't act if you just don't know. That is not the place of government to act unless you have facts. Nah. You have facts. You don't just say, okay, we're going to lock down the whole world. We're going to ruin people's lives, businesses, livelihoods, let people die in nursing homes because you just don't know. You don't let people be at the hospital with their loved ones. You don't let people have a funeral. You don't let people worship. That's just, I mean, I'm no lawyer, yeah. but that to me sounds very tyrannical. Uh-huh. Very like to me, that's that is not something the government should tell us we can or cannot do. Right. And that is just wrong. And with the whole the vaccine stuff, fine. That's great. If you want to get it, wonderful. But there are people that are keeping scorecard because this is not something you just let go. This right. changed the fabric of American society, how much we actually can can get along with one another. I mean, there was already a divide because of Trump. Yes. Well, this? it wasn't because of Trump, but I, I know yeah, what you mean. No, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's pretty Trumpy. Yeah. But but there there was a political divide. Mm-hmm. But then you add this fear mongering in, and this I feel like I, I feel like we're irreparable as a society. Like I mean, there are very few people like like you and me, Jamal, that that we are on opposite ends yeah. of this vaccine thing. But we can still be friends and get along. Of course, but there's not that many people like that. That's the problem here in the U.S. They have bought into the mainstream media. You're on this side or that side. You're team vaccine or you're not. Right. You're good or you're evil. And and you know what? If if you if you boil it down to who is mostly on the left, who mostly identifies as the left, and that's usually the left or right coast. Usually, people that like to identify as you know well versed and well read and educated—that's who, usually who identifies with the left, and they have a certain idea of those who are on the right. Right, right. The deplorables, as Hillary Clinton says, the low IQ voter, the low information voter—that yeah. is, you know, in in small private circles, that's what the left looks at that group as, right? And that is the group that chose not to get vaccinated, chose not to want to wear a mask, yeah. chose, all, chose all the other things that proved to be right, where after two and a half years in... They didn't prove to be right. They, the left did not prove to be right. Right didn't Wait, prove I'm to be right either. I'm saying left and right. Hold I on. mean, look, those, a million people dropped dead from COVID. Let's put it in those context. Those numbers have been admitted to be false. Those numbers were not false. I mean, look, you could They're say... absolutely false, Those numbers GT. aren't false. Those numbers... You need those numbers to be false in order to make the argument no, work. No, dying with COVID is very different than dying of COVID. No, that's there are, nonsense. Yes, yes. All things been equal. Look, those Tomorrow, people would die, still be alive if I had, today. If I had COVID and I was driving in a car and I got in a car wreck and, and I got oh, careened look, by I, a bus... Fair enough with that they part. They marked me as dead from COVID. Fair enough about that part. That's not the same thing. But you still had hundreds of thousands of people die sure, from COVID. Many of those people had comorbidities. Many but of those people had other illnesses. Number. And the idea, and Fauci look, admitted it. I agree that wearing, putting your sleeve on your nose didn't is work. not the same thing a as work. But work. I never thought that. But that, that's not a mask. That's the difference. That's not a mask. That's people putting well, they, their they told, thing no, 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 over no. there. They, they told their us a cloth stuff. mask would work. Like, that's fine. I don't Use know why they told mask. them a cloth mask would work. I never necessarily believe a cloth mask was a mask, personally. Just pointing out. Um, look, if you are working at a company and you have multiple people who are at that company, yes, you have a responsibility as the person who owns that company to not have those people drop dead. Even here, we have multiple people here with all sorts of sure. illnesses and everything else. The idea that you would let somebody in without a vaccine, do those people have a right to exist? But what is, what is the point of the vaccine when they, they lied to us and they said, this, the stop the spread, get the vaccine. Initially, the vaccine, it stopped the spread. The As vaccine it mutated, does, it not, changed. does not stop it, does Initially, not contra- stop contraction, does not stop spread. Initially, it did. 
If you think back to the very beginning of the vaccine, when the first iteration of the virus happened, those people weren't necessarily getting infected. As the virus mutated, you had multiple people who were getting infected. And even then, the chances of you catching that virus lessen. We used to have doctors come on here who were virologists who would make that point over and over again. I've talked to some, too. We had them on the show multiple times. Even Shane. Shane was somewhat skeptical-ish about it. He took more of the opposing side of it. And look, most of the audience completely disagrees with me on this. So fair <laughs> enough. We used to have Kim Iverson on the show. We used to have wars over the issue of the COVID stuff. Yeah, I'm on the same page with Kim. Yeah. And Kim and I used to disagree magnificently so. Still love her. She's awesome. Um, I guess my point is this. And I, to, I guess, back up some of what the article is saying, her point is you are in a fog of not knowing what's happening with something, meaning something is happening to your society. Like you view Spanish it as world. her saying, cl- like, fog of war. Yeah, that's the way it comes across to me, where she's like, it's not so much that she's saying, for her, it's like, look, some of the people on the right had misinformation and they got it wrong. They were doing, what, hydrochloroquine. They were taking horse pace and all this other stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. So all of that stuff. About. And so it's like, okay, so you have people who got it wrong on both sides. Can we stop the fighting? That's the way I took the article. This, you're in a fog. You have all of these people dying. People need to take action. And you take action. And some of that action is wrong. Some of that action is correct. That's the way I took the article. And I got to be honest, I can't say I can entirely disagree with her on that. I mean, how I'm long not, do you I'm have not, this? I'm not as annoyed about the vaccine thing. Because to me, to me, I'm more annoyed at the having the choice to yeah. do it, the choice to do ABC that's right for you. Right. For you as an as a human individual right. with your own body and with respect to some degree, you respect others like I don't careen through red lights. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? For the right. same reason. Because I respect your life. I see you walking across the street. You know, even if you're jaywalking, right. I'm not going to careen into you when well, I'm driving because I, I respect that. your life. But well, like, there are laws but, against that also. But, but yeah. But my point, that's the whole point. Laws don't, red lights don't stop drunk drivers or people that choose Correct. to plow through it, right? So laws don't even matter. It's the fact that me as a human being, I respect. But the law so, does matter. I mean, it creates a negative incentive for the person to do it, extra work. Yeah. So, yeah. A you know, yeah. so there, there, I'll say there are two things, you know. So there's COVID. Right. There is a global pandemic, you know, global pandemic. And there is the politics yes. of COVID. Yes. So, and both of those things were taking place at once. They I were mean, taking, Fauci is a great example of that because Fauci lied multiple times yes. purely for the politics. Yes. But so I, I'm one of those. And as I say often, when it comes to government, I never think that the government is going to get it right all the time. Right. So on the one side, you had COVID where for the first time in our, most of our lives, we had to deal with businesses being closed Schools were closed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our streets were empty. Yeah. People were Restaurants fired. were shut down. People so were fired. In right. that fog Collapsing. of war, there were a lot of things we just didn't know. Yes. And so I, I, I don't necessarily fault those who were, a, as we're in it, trying to do things to, to mitigate it. it. And yeah. I'll give you some, you know, grace for getting certain things wrong. The politics— of that. So there were certain there were decisions that were being made. So we're talking about the vaccine. Yeah. There was a decision made not to um put out there that the virus that came, the vaccine that came available in December there will be not a possibility. They weren't saying at the time that there will be another variant. That right. it will. Yeah, mutation mutate. never came up. Right. It, 
That never came up. Because it was only. It was just get, get the, the vaccine, vaccine. You'll be protected. It won't and spread. And Joe Biden was going around because he had gotten in the White House at that point. And so his thing was he needed, you know, certain, I think, 80 percent of yeah. Americans or something. Initially, by it was January, 70. Then he went to 80. Yeah. By January, by July 4th. Right. He wanted a certain point of Americans vaccinated. And so the campaign that they went on was to then demonize right. those who did not get the vaccine. So right. you had doctors pinning articles talking about questioning whether or not they should treat unvaccinated people. Right. You had all of the laws that were happening in places where if you were not unvaccinated, if you were not vaccinated, you couldn't get into this restaurant. Yeah. Those were the politics but see, I gotta of be honest, COVID I, that didn't— that that wasn't, and as we know now, there there weren't. Um, you know, it made sense at the time when we didn't know how it was spread. Yeah, you know, it made sense at the time. So restaurants put up those. You know, the all and was, the, it was the, and the restaurant thing was pretty stupid. If you're going to oh, shut yeah, it down, you're going mean, to shut it, it down, right? Because it, it was, was like you walk in. You have your mask on, <laughs> and then, then you, you sit down and you take it off, and then you take it off because there's a magic bubble at your table that prevent it the spread right. of the but, COVID. But you know, I'm willing to actually weird. forgive that because again, it was new. We had we had uh-uh. we had Ubers no. like we had we had Uber drivers who were they plastic? You know, they had plastic. Yeah. I mean, so I'm saying so. A lot of people, there was so much uncertainty but about see, the what restaurant this thing. Was. Didn't have anything to do with COVID. They had everything to do with business. I mean, even in New York, they were like, if you had one shot, you can get in. And it's like, right. but one shot, it's not protection. Right. You just want to keep the restaurant open. Mm-hmm. Be honest, right? It was mm-hmm. this kind of weird mix of, well, we want to keep the businesses open by the same token we want people. It was very strange in the way that they and were basically terrible. applying that. And it was terrible how they they rolled all of that out. Yes, we know a lot of things now. I, I As I said, you know, I got the vaccine. I was encouraging people to get the vaccine because I think there's a lack of recognition on both sides. And I say this to my conservative friend and I say this to my liberal friends. You know, one of the first persons that we knew who died of COVID was Herman Cain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I took that personally He's because yeah. I knew, you know, I met he Herman Cain. He was in that Cain. documentary. Yeah, I, I met Herman Cain um, several times. And so to see someone, this new thing, and you had, and for black people particularly, we were disproportionately impacted yes. by COVID. Yes. So to see people die of, as we know now, you know, yes, the whole comorbidity thing, but it was a, it was shocking. Look, I was, it was scary. I was hardcore on the whole vaccination stuff. I'm perfectly fine with people not being able to come to businesses if they didn't necessarily get vaccinated. Because again, you have, look, if you have a right as an individual to say, I don't want to get vaccinated, God bless you. Fair enough. Then that company has a right, libertarian point of view, to not allow you into that company to get other people infected. But many companies were not allowed to make that decision. That's the whole okay, point. Okay, that is true. That is not the point. So the go- the some, government some enforced the city made the decision right. They started getting more heavy about it. Yes. DC was, but so did you feel the same way about the vaccine in restaurants at the end? And when I say at the end, for instance, like February of this year, D.C. still had the vaccine mandate in place. No. After the restaurant. Um, the, this year? Yeah. They still Throughout? had it going on. Now, yeah. the further we got into it, when it got into Omicron, at that point, I was like, well, look, this is basically a cold. Right. Let people live their life. I mean, but right. at the point where you were at the Delta variant, we had 2,000 people dying a day. We were recording that stuff as it was happening. It was like another 2,000 people dropped dead today. We're at this number. And it's like after you reading that for like a year. But they lied to you is the thing. The media was in collusion with 
they're, they're parroting the talking points of the CDC and the NIH and the liar Anthony Fauci, who who would break his own COVID policies. They admitted, they admitted that right now they're admitting yeah. all around the world that somewhere between on the low end, 50 percent up to about 61 percent, I think. So 500,000 people dropping. So hold on. In the in the in Europe, I forget which European country. But anyway, my point is coming from the U.S. to over there. So there's anywhere from around 50% upwards that they say that medical professionals were were outwardly checking the box COVID death, cause yeah. of death, COVID, even though you're dying with COVID, not of COVID. Right. And hospitalizations, same thing. You can go in with a broken arm, be asymptomatic COVID. They marked you as hospitalized. They test you and they're like, oh, you have COVID. Check mark, yeah. you're hospitalized because of COVID. They conflated the two on purpose. The point is and they the inflated media, the numbers. And the media ran with it without double checking anything. Okay. So I think so uh, 500,000 people dropped dead. Yeah. That's what so, the statistics uh, we, are showing. Wait, wait, wait. Say, I, the point I'm making here is that number is still damning. Yeah. That number is still, still damning. And even I mean, whether we, you're talking about a million yeah. or half a million, that number is still astonishingly right. high. But you have more people than that every year, 600 some odd thousand every year dying of heart disease. So what? So, so it's what? a high number. So That's why are we father. more scared? Why Look, are you scared of it more? We, the point is the fear mongering by the media is what I hated because I've worked in this industry for most of my life. I hate I get that, but it's not fear mongering if half a million people to a million people drop dead. That's yeah, the point so that I make. Okay. Let's fear monger heart disease. That well, were, we should fear monger heart disease. Yeah, I, I agree. We did, did, to separate the things that we know definitely were deliberate, like was as part of a communication yeah. campaign. Fauci to, coming out saying, "Oh, masks don't work because he didn't right. have enough masks, and so he wanted to lie about the masks." Right. But, but then, then, other stuff things, like that. Like yeah, even, and I'll even say from the media perspective, the media is um, reporting what health professionals say. Right. And, but there were even debates between health professionals on, you know, where yeah. this was going. So I think we need to also... But see, because you know, some of those were that. political debates, too. Because, look, you're stuck with a problem, right? Your government has just been confronted with a virus that seems to be killing people like flies. Right. That's what you're stuck with. And the government comes in and says, okay, we got to do something about it. And we need the public to be in a mindset, in which case you get the media collusion that you're pointing to, and you get the government coming out, putting a strong narrative in order to put pressure on businesses and people to basically and look, comply. And look, mm-hmm. as, as Malik pointed out, the whole politics of this was, I believe, directed at weakening Trump's position. Oh, it was. The politics part. I'm not part talking about the, I'm not talking about like the health. I'm talking about the way it was positioned in the media only aided to bring down Because only Trump. Republicans were irresponsible. Hence the yeah. Ron DeSantis, that irresponsible... I mean, you but know, you got people down there on the like attacking, like, um, vaccine locations. You got people not oh, yeah, wanting to wear masks. Stuff. I mean, some of that yeah. stuff was just extreme. And Donald Trump out there, you know, kind of ripping his mask off, standing there with COVID, his body full of, you know, weird vaccines or weird whatever they gave him at the hospital and all this other stuff. Look, he made it worse. I'm sorry. Just like balls and arrow, he made the position worse. Oh yeah, and Donald, yeah, Donald I, Trump helped politicize yeah, COVID. Yeah, and in fact, Everybody that's how did. he ultimately that's, and and of lost. course, but, and right, and, and Biden comes in and politicizes right. himself. It became a left versus right thing in the media because they were they were totally not interested in seeing how it was playing out in places all around the country. Agreed. I remember here in Washington D.C., people don't like this is stuff that people don't even won't even remember. So when they first started the masking requirement right. at the local grocer and supermarket in my neighborhood, we had National Guardsmen 
out there. Really? Yeah, Wait, because at the pe- grocery yeah, store. Because stores? people were getting into oh, situations. That's what I mean. Because yeah, they didn't want was, to be masked. You know, no, no, no. Yeah, so it was yes, toilet paper. Was a lot of people that didn't know getting in a fight. It was about toilet paper, let's be clear. It was oh, yeah. about toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even lie. But it yeah. was about toilet but paper. But you remember, there was a resistance. There were fights. And it, and it yeah, was there over the mask fights. stuff. And it wasn't, yes. and remember at the time, it wasn't a left versus right thing. It wasn't that it was just Republicans saying, oh, no, I don't want to do it. No. There are no there are very few Republicans in my neighborhood. Yeah, the fights that were happening in the grocery store were so bad that they had to place the National Guard outside because people were saying, "I don't want to wear the mask. I'm not going to wear the mask." Which to me is so and it wasn't left versus right at that time. I had that God, man. To me, that's so minor. Like, look for me, it's like you are going to deal with people where you have no idea what their issue is. Just across the globe, right? I mean, anywhere you are, in what store you're going to be but in. But think about it. this is America. Tell, so you're telling the American. I know, but it's so selfish. We, you know, shut, we, we shut down that. schools. Do you know what the horrific scores look like now for yeah. children across the, the board? Every, appalling, every right. grade level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're, we're talking from preschool all the way up. Yes. And college enrollment is down. Col- I and mean, it was hard to everything mitigate is bad. that, though. Yeah. Because right. then what would you. What so do you just do? Keep them open? I mean, like, do you just keep schools and some open? Some places did, and they didn't have. There wasn't any like any real impact. But I but think some the places fall were. of war that really plays uh-uh. into it because you didn't know what would happen. But there were plenty of schools that were having those kids getting sick and everything else. I mean, yeah. I guess my thing but is co- like, what do you do? My son had COVID. Kids, generally speaking, if they're a healthy kid, and most kids are generally healthy when you're young because you don't have all <laughs> easy these- to say until your kid dies. But there's a kid. Are if those kids that have Obviously, I'm a parent. I'm, I'm sensitive to other parents. That I know. Have I'm kids just saying issues. there's a lot of kids that drop but, dead from COVID. No, there's not. Are you serious? There's are you not, really? Jamaro. There's how many kids? Are there's you not. telling me no kid dropped dead from COVID? No, or for I didn't that matter, no. those schools that were full of no. people. Okay. I didn't say no. I'm saying I said the if you are a parent kids, and your kid was getting got sick from COVID. What I'm telling you is the majority, I mean, it's like I get the majority less than of kids point, survived. It's like a point zero something number. If there's a zero ahead of that number of children that were infected, Right. Children under the age of 18. Let's go even smaller. It's let's a very go to little small kids. Percentage. Look, it's I, I less would... than less than half a percent of those kids have even died. So it right. it happened. Yes, it happened. Yes. But you have a higher likelihood of dying in a car wreck out of your car seat. Look, point as I'm a making child. here is if you have kids and who are in school is, and if you're a parent, no, the point is you can be very concerned. We've done that more that kid damage. We have done more damage to small children by keeping them out of school, keeping them out. How many yeah, kids? Disagree. How much how much suicide? Do you know how much suicide was up? I know. It went up. How much suicide between teenagers? I mean, the little kids, they're falling behind, you know, yes. in terms of like their Trump speech. Trump actually mentioned the suicide the rates. Suicide. He was mocked for it. Teen well, he suicide. Be mocked for it. So it went up. In the spring of 2020, when Donald Trump was speaking out against schools and businesses closing, one of the things that he said is that suicide. Su- and he was mocked. Well, the suicide rate did go up, but consider what took place over the last and that's two years. And not even just the adults. I'm talking about teenagers. Yeah. So, no, so am I. Yeah, I believe there's, there was more damage done than good by, by operating on the, well, we didn't know any better. I believe that caused more harm. Now that in know, hindsight is 2020, hindsight, right. we have caught, we have, we can see, but there were a lot of people that were in my camp that were like, wait a minute, you don't need to be a PhD. You don't need to be a Dr. Fauci. Common sense would tell you, what's a cloth mask going to do walking through the restaurant until I sit down? I know. Common sense will tell the, you that. Our engineer producer, 1,500 kids dropped dead from COVID. 
a small percentage of all the kids that got COVID. 1,500 kids dropped dead from COVID. Kids, Your response is that's kids? a small, that, that's not. No, 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 no. 1,500 1, kids is a lot of kids. And but if you were that parent, you would be Jamar, appalled. You need to look deeper into the numbers and I will tell no, you, Manila, these are I'm, children with comorbidities that have, and they were that, bound Manila, to but it's school. have something You're going to have, happen. look, you're going to have, those if you are a parent, if you are a parent, keep those children at home. If you are a parent, why should they have to keep their church? You just said. Why should this. a healthy, why should the 98, 99% of other know, healthy Manila, kids not but be how able do you to go know to that? school and How learn? do you know that? Because you're basically sending kids. No, you have, have numbers, numbers now. You have numbers now. But and if, the, you're a, if you're a parent and if you're one of those 1,500, you will be appalled. Because if even you are a parent on, and you have those kids that are in those schools and you're like, that could potentially a COVID Very, very early on. There were studies by Johns Hopkins. There were international studies by the Italians, by the South Koreans within the first six months. Right. Within the first six months, okay, right. that all concurred with one another that said COVID does not really harm children under um, pu- uh, under the puberty age. So basically like seventh, eighth grade down. Right. Those children are not really at risk. They'll catch it. They'll get better. A couple yeah. days later, they're fine. I don't know that. And that I don't know that. Well, and I don't okay, know don't, that a couple of them— You don't believe them, Johns Hopkins. You don't believe the international No, no, studies. no. What I'm getting at is so you're having all those kids in a school. If you're a parent, you have no idea whether or not those kids are going to be adversely affected from COVID. The fact that 1,500 kids died, how many of those kids got sick but didn't die? I mean, I'm millions making a point that— Millions and millions. That, exactly. That's kind of what but, I'm getting at. Those kids, kids were having lingering COVID. Those kids were having issues that went beyond— cancer? that died of the cancer while they were infected with COVID. What does How that have to do with the price of so tea in China, po- Manila? I'm making is, a point that as a parent. As everybody else, you you have done more harm by keeping children away from their, uh-uh. their social that. circles, learning circles. They, the, the loss of education right. in children, like basically my son's generation. They will make right? that up. They can make that up. I, they can't right make now, up it's not, it's not showing. They can't it's make not up death. showing that. They can't well, make up death. Seems to, you guys seem to agree on the fog of war. Now. The fog of war is exact. I gave it and a I little bit what Manila's to fog point of war. Is, Manila wants hindsight. In his, in his, in his no, no, no. That's what it sounds like. So, no, no. Thing, I, I got to be honest. No, if no, I'm a parent, I'll give grace for a couple of months, but when I'm research parent, started coming out after six months— If I'm a parent, I would not enough. be sending but my kid into a school. We go, so what is— That could potentially be a COVID factor. Whether you're on which side of the article or not, the remedy is what? So what does hold people accountable? Personally, I agree with the article. Because otherwise— Because to me, it's like, yeah, it is fog of war. I say no truce. She said no truce. <laughs> no truce. So I'm saying, so what you does do that not look get, like, though? The, the, so the, no truce means So what that, that looks like to me, happened? no truce, is she that there the needs card. to be, yes, hell yes, I'm keeping score. What needs to happen is there needs to be a, a, a DOJ investigation into whether or not any civil rights and, and liberties were broken uh-huh. because the government looked for a tiny window of opportunity to be like, how do we expand our powers so just prosecuted. like the Patriot Act? Yeah. I want somebody to do an investigation to see if any civil rights were violated. Uh-huh. How many people, maybe there is a class action lawsuit uh-huh. against, well, we I don't know, know let's, say Gavin Newsom. let's say Gavin Newsom pulling these stupid triggers of Closing. Cl- the skate you know park sounds much? ridiculous. There's literally, honest. there's literally like probably two cases. I'm not even exaggerating. Like single digit cases of people that contracted COVID while they were out in nature. Yeah. Okay. And Gavin Newsom shut down the whole damn state, the parks, the beaches, 
the skate parks, you put sand in them to add insult Manila to injury. angry. Yeah, she's yeah. not going to take it Look, anymore. I <laughs> want to see somebody prosecuted for violating people's civil rights. They probably and Fauci won't be. for lying. Yeah, they won't be. They won't be. They won't Look, be. Fauci should have been fired. I agree with that. The school thing, yeah, we radically disagree on that point. I have... If I'm a parent, I'm not sending my kid to a school if I don't necessarily know for certain that my kid is going to be safe. I took my kid And the to fact play. that 1,500 dropped dead gets across that point, I have no idea how many of those kids are going to have long-term too, COVID. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah, I care about but my kid too much to, to send them to school like that. You're careful to some point, and then yeah. you're like, wait. Yeah, let me I don't want around. my kid going to a COVID factory. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, Malik, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. We are also joined with Malik Abdul. <laughs> he's yes, here with us. Um, and Wait, he's right. got to do his tagline. Yeah. Oh, oh no, that's that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, um, oh, yeah. He's, he's joining us um, for our election coverage. Malik knows the stuff backwards and forwards. Can't touch him on it. You know, he was a Fed. He worked for the government. He used to be a Fed. You don't have a Fed face, though. No, I know. It's not like no, Jake no. Sullivan. Like, she's like, Jake Sullivan has a punchy, Fed face. Punchy Fed face. <laughs> right. Face. Uh, but look, let's get into the headlines. All right. Malik, on you. Let's start with some headline news. Former President, U.S. President Donald Trump said on Sunday he doubts the country could survive the two remaining years of President Joe Biden's term, alluding to the failures of his administration. This country, quoting Donald Trump, I don't know if it's going to live for another two years. That is what's happening. So you've got to get out and vote for this man, referring to Republican candidate Dr. Oz. He's a good man. Trump said at a campaign rally in Pennsylvania ahead of the upcoming midterm elections. Remember, Donald Trump endorsed Mehmet Oz during the primary over other Republican candidates. Trump stressed that the U.S. has never been so bad as it is right now noting Washington's weakening standing in the world. Quoting again, it's never been in this position. We're not respected any place. It is, it's amazing that we love each other. We're having such a good time. And yet the subject is so negative. They're nothing good to say. They have nothing good to say about what's happening in our country. Now, if you remember Joe Biden's speech from last week, it's actually giving a lot of a lot of validity to what Donald Trump is saying because Donald Trump, Joe Biden, that is, did not talk about anything good that was happening in the country and nothing that his administration was doing that was beneficial to the American people. We do know he hates Trump, though. President Joe Biden said on Sunday that the price of gasoline at the pump is currently $3.19 per gallon, which is almost 20% lower than the figures of the American Automobile Association, AAA, which publishes daily U.S. gas prices. 
quoting, right now, the most common price at gas stations across the country is $3.19 per gallon. That's progress, Biden said on Twitter. However, the association's Sunday data showed that the average gas price stood at $3.08 per gallon, 19% more than what was announced by the president. 380 per gallon. I said $3.80 per gallon, 19% more than what was announced by the president. According to AAA figures, out of all U.S. states, only in two, Texas and Georgia, isn't that something, where the gas price was below $3.20. So those Republican states, those red states, seem to have lower gas prices. Texas and Georgia. And I do believe I have to go and check. Twitter might have said something about Joe Biden's post himself. And just to tell you the difference in what's happening here, Joe Biden was apparently quoting the common price, which is always lower than the average price for gas. So that's a little something where I was doing some reading on why they tagged him on Twitter, saying that he was not necessarily. Yeah. Yes, yes for Elon Musk's Twitter. This is exactly what I want from him. And more domestic news. The Biden administration is privately encouraging Kiev to demonstrate a readiness to negotiate with Moscow. Washington Post reports citing people familiar with the discussions, the newspaper said on Saturday, that Washington does not want Ukraine to start negotiations with Russia, but instead aims to ensure Kiev has the support of other countries. Ukraine fatigue is a real thing for some of our partners, one U.S. official said, and according to the newspaper, concerns are mounting in parts of Europe, Africa, and Latin America as food and fuel prices are rising amid Russia's ongoing special operation in Ukraine. Piper Lewis, who recently turned 18, pleaded guilty to stabbing Zachary Brooks, 37, over 30 times after being forced into sex trafficking through the threat of violence when she was 15 years old. The Iowa teen, who was sentenced to five years of closely supervised provision for killing her alleged rapist, has escaped custody at the woman's facility she was housed in on Friday. According to local media, Lewis said she found herself homeless and living in the hallway of an apartment building in Des Moines, Iowa, after running away from her adopted mother, who Lewis says was abusive. A 28-year-old man eventually took her in and then forced her into sex trafficking. And in 2020, after she says she was drugged and repeatedly raped by Brooks, Lewis admitted to killing Brooks in a fit of rage. More on President Joe Biden seems to have acknowledged that Republicans possibly taking over Congress in next week's midterm elections may lead to him being impeached. In an address to his supporters in San Diego, Biden said that he was already being told that if they, speaking of GOP members, win back the House and Senate, they're going to impeach him. I don't know what the hell they're going to impeach me for. I'm not joking. Recently, they said we should stop talking about that till we win. President Biden added, yes, I can make 
Joe Biden feel very confident in knowing that, yes, Republicans will file articles of impeachment against the U.S. president, Joe Biden, whether or not he's ultimately impeached in the House or Senate. I'm really not sure. The Senate, definitely not, because you need at least 60 votes in the Senate in order to do that. Now, the question is, if you kill the filibuster, do you still need 60 votes? Hmm. In international news, the Russian bots and trolls blamed for former President Donald Trump's 2016 election victory have reportedly returned to social media platforms ahead of net week, next week's, mid, this week's, actually, midterm elections. The New York Times claimed on Sunday that they are focusing their discord sowing, disinfo promoting attacks on alternative networks like Gab and Parler, citing researchers from Recorded Future, Mandion, and Graphica. Questionable accounts believed to be linked to Russian troll farm Internet research agency are targeting conservatives ahead of Tuesday's midterm elections. The researcher said hitting familiar themes like voter fraud, Democrats' perceived leniency on crime, the administration's blank check to Ukraine, transgender children, and other hot-button issues. Now, just to kind of go back to that a little bit, what is being reported is that Russian bots, trolls. It's like a troll farm. They're infiltrating our, let's just say our news, our social media. And what are those things that they are putting out there that apparently, obviously, if it's a troll, then they're out there putting disinformation. And what is that disinformation again? Photo fraud. Crime. Ukraine, a blank trek to Ukraine, transgender children, and other hot-button issues. Doesn't seem like disinformation to me. It seems like exactly what the American people are talking about. And in fact, polls back it up. But hey, I don't know. Maybe the Russian bots are referring to actual polls, U.S. polls, that prove this. More international news. The United States is tired of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and will stop supporting him as soon as Washington no longer needs its puppet in Kiev. Florian Filippo, Filippo leader of the French Patriots Party, said on Sunday, the American government is starting to get tired of Zelensky and is asking him to negotiate with Russia. When the new U.S. no longer needs its puppet, they will get rid of him as always, Filippo said on Twitter. Now, keep in mind, this is on the back of the U.S. House of Representatives, members of the squad, the Progressive Caucus, um, actually wrote a letter that was encouraging Joe Biden to look for a peace solution between Russia and Ukraine. And then they had to come back and rescind it because Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats apparently had a problem with it. More news. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg said on Saturday that the chance of Russia using nuclear weapons in Ukraine was small, though the bloc was taking the issue very seriously. 
The risk that Russia would use nuclear weapons in Ukraine was low, but the alliance was very serious about it as the consequences of a nuclear attack would be devastating. Stoltenberg told the Turkish NTV broadcaster, adding that Russia's position on the use of nuclear arms remained unchanged. The Secretary General added that NATO wanted to make it clear that there would be no winners in a nuclear war as he condemned Russia for irresponsible and dangerous behavior. In more international news, the Syrian Air Force, in response to an attack by militants of the Jabhat al-Nusra al terrorist group on positions of government forces in Latakia, Latakia, I got it. I got it right. There we go. Destroyed a militant training camp, said General Major General Oleg Yegorov, de deputy head of the Russian Defense Ministry's Center for Reconciliation of Opposing Sides in Syria. Quoting, as a result of the attack, a training camp for militants and underground shelters of illegal armed groups in the area of settlement of Ashkani Tani were destroyed. 93 militants were killed, including field commanders. 135 members of the terrorist group were seriously injured. This is what was told at a briefing. Yegorov also added that the Air Force destroyed a drone's assembly workshop and up to 40 drone strikes, strike drones, preventing terrorist attacks against the Russian armed forces and Syrian government forces. And on this day in history, in 1987, October Revolution in Russia, Lenin and the Bolsheviks seize power, capture the Winter Palace and overthrow the provisional government. And in 1931, Chinese People's Republic proclaimed by Mao Zedong. And in 2000, controversial U.S. presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore is inconclusive. The result in Bush's favor is eventually resolved by the U.S. Supreme Court. And also in 2020, former Vice President Joe Biden is officially declared the winner of the U.S. presidential race four days after the election, defeating sitting President Donald Trump. These are your headlines for today. November 7th. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. November something. November <laughs> Someday in November. November. One like of these November. days. Well, it's like 30 of them. Which one is it? Um, look, those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Manila Chan. Joining us is Malik Abdul. We'll be back. The one and only Scott Ritter. Back shortly. Fault lines. Fault lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan. Joining us also is Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, 
You can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Don't be shy. We will try to get to you at 945. Of course, that always depends upon the conversation. But we're joined by the one and only Scott Ritter. Scott Ritter is a former UN weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. Scott, welcome, my man. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, thanks. Uh, how are you guys? We are doing great. Better that you are with us. You are easily one of my favorite guests. You, Sloboda, Mark Frost, there's a few of you guys that I can point out. Ted Raw, another one of them. Yes, yeah, Scott just uh, was back on Twitter and then got pulled off again. Wait what? a minute. <laughs> what? Scott. Scott. What are you doing on Twitter? Usually you're the voice of truth. What happened? How, how did you get pulled off so fast? What What did you put up? Well, I basically, um, I had no plans on going back to Twitter. I had appealed my previous suspension. But then I read uh, that Elon Musk had purchased Twitter. And um, I refamiliarized myself with his stance, uh, free speech absolutist. Uh-huh. And the fact that he uh, tweeted uh, that the bird is free. Um, I said, okay, it's a good time to test it. I, I, I'm not about to go crawling on my knees asking them to reinstate me. Um, that's a decision they make. I don't need to ask for it. So I created a new account. Now, that's a violation of the rules. But I said right in my uh, thing that this ca- this account is an open violation of the Twitter rules. Um, basically, I'm testing whether or not you're truly free. And uh, the tweet I said was, uh, I'm back, test, test, test. Butcher was a war crime. Butcher, of course, being uh-huh. the, 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 the massacre of civilians in a northern Kiev suburb uh, in April that got me originally banned uh, when I said that Ukraine did it. and. You know, it was false to blame Russia. And you explained it. You broke it down in extreme, if I remember correctly, you broke it down in clear terms in regards to why you made the point of saying Bucha was a war crime. It wasn't the Russians that did it. But I, this time I just said Ukraine did it. Test, test, test. And apparently um, test was accepted and I failed. Fair enough. How long, <laughs> Fair enough. Scott, how long did it take before the, for you to get suspended? Less than 24 hours. Oh, wow. wow. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Maybe the bird is not free. You wrote an article in Consortium News. I always enjoy your articles. And this one is a dangerous, bloody, and dirty game. I love this article because you make this point about saying these two systems are colliding. This rules-based order is colliding with this kind of, let's say, this other global order that is seeking to have, let's say, a unity of nations itself. Meaning the elimination is a rule-based order. Rules-based order really just boils down to our way of the road we set the terms, we dictate terms. And your point is saying that is coming to a head. That is basically coming to an end. And the question is whether or not this quote-unquote rules-based order will give way to this, let's say, non-hegemonic shift that the world is taking with these kind of new economic orders, for that matter, military orders that are basically taking um, shape. Give, give me just a summary of your explanation of this in this the article in and of itself. Well, first of all, we're, we're dealing with two ideological approaches. One that's uh, set forth. I've got a, a dog uh, wrestling match taking place. Oh, you're fine. <laughs> you're fine. I usually have two myself, so I totally get it. So, um, but the Biden administration uh, put forth the national security strategy of the United States. Uh, and this is the vision statement of, you know, where the, 
what the United States, who we are, what we are, and what we plan on doing about it with, you know, the Biden frosting on top. Now, I compared and contrasted that with uh, President Putin's uh, address at the Valdai conference, where he pretty much said that whatever Biden put down in writing is no longer applicable. Neither Russia nor, frankly, the rest of the world is buying into it. Uh, that system is dead, and we're moving on to something else. But he also pointed out that the United States wasn't about to go gently into that good night, that this was going to become a, a, you know, a, a dirty, dangerous game as the United States sought to use whatever levers they had remaining to resist the historical changes that uh, the world is demanding. I mean, the world is no longer going to be tolerant of an American singularity, of an American hegemon. Uh, the rules-based international order has been exposed as not being you know, a fair you know, set of rules for everybody, but rules that solely benefited the United States at the expense of virtually everybody else. And the Russians are saying, no, there's a whole world out here that you know, wants to cooperate together, and rather than doing so under the framework of a rules-based international order that singularly benefits the United States, the world is looking for a law-based international order, uh, and that law being something the world has already agreed upon, the United Nations Charter. And so this is the competing vision uh, that I was uh, describing in my article. You know, one of the things that I want to get to has to do with the United States changing its nuclear posture. Um, and I, this is disturbing to put it mildly. I mean, for one, they were talking about moving nuclear weapons into um, parts of Europe this year, not next year, basically moving up the timeline on that. And even changing first strike policy, meaning this idea that I, I think if I remember correctly, they made this point of saying in 2030, the United States is going to be confronted by two nuclear power nations, talking about Russia and China. These countries have said they basically are closer than allies, which gets across that any conflict with one is basically a conflict with both. And that all things been equal, China has to be bright enough to realize that if Russia goes down, that they are basically alone and isolated, which I suspect from a foreign policy standpoint, they're not necessarily going to let happen by itself. Meaning if this gets into some kind of exchange, then you're not dealing with just one country, you're dealing with multiple. Also, on that very specific point, this idea that we're willing to use a first strike policy, even in a situation where conventional weapons are being used, and even in cases of allies, not even stuff that's basically directed to us. Give me your take on that. I mean, that, this is disastrous. This is just bravado, or is this an actual reality that we're basically dealing with now? Give me your take on this. Well, it's an actual reality. I mean, let's let's go back to the 1960s and 70s where Soviet Union and the United States were in the midst of an arms race where tens of thousands of nuclear missiles were being deployed. And uh, the realization was that in order to finish the arms race, uh, both sides needed to embrace the, the reality that nuclear war can't be won, therefore shouldn't be fought. They embraced something called mutually assured destruction. If you use against me, I use them against you, we all die, therefore, let's not do this. Um, but then George W. Bush uh, came into office, and he, he said, no, we're not playing that game anymore. The Soviet Union's gone, Russia's weak, China hasn't grown up yet, um, and we're going to take advantage of America's nuclear supremacy to impose our will on the world. So he changed the uh, nuclear posture of the United States away from uh, you know, no first strike, uh, mutually assured destruction to 
Now, you know, we think we can actually win a nuclear war, and we can use nuclear weapons preemptively under any conditions that we determine. Are, it doesn't have to be in response to nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction. It can be a cyber attack. It can be uh, anything. We, we're going to leave the world guessing pretty much on what our red line is. And that way, in effect, the United States is holding the world hostage to nuclear terror, saying that um, just don't mess with us because you don't know when we're going to go off the rails and nuke you. Uh, our, stra- our nuclear posture leaves it wide open. Now, Obama came in and said, that's insane. Thank you, Barack. But like everything that Barack Obama did, he never followed up. And he kept that policy in place for eight years. He kept saying that he wanted to go back to what's called the single purpose doctrine. The sole or sole purpose doctrine is America's nuclear arsenal will only be used in deterrence and only as a result of a nuclear attack against the United States. But he didn't ever follow through on that. And then Trump came in and Trump sort of doubled down on the Bush the Bush doctrine. And so Joe Biden was running and, and, you know, contrasting himself to Trump. And he said, one of the first things I plan on doing when I become president of the United States is to make the sole purpose, the doctrine of America. Okay, Joe, here's your chance. He published his national security strategy. Inclusive of this was a nuclear posture and he didn't do it. He basically kept the same policy in place, knowing that the timing of this was at a time of great tension with Russia, where what we really need is a statement of sole purpose. Instead, we further muddy the waters about what we'll do, when we'll do it, how we'll do it, to whom we'll do it uh, when it comes to nuclear weapons, which only increases what Vladimir Putin was talking about, this dangerous, dirty game. This dangerous, dirty game could go nuclear in a heartbeat, thanks to the United States. Now, Scott, on that dangerous, dirty game, um, off the battlefield, something happened at the UNGA. Uh, I believe it was Friday. There was a a draft resolution that the Russians put out basically condemning Nazism, condemning the Nazis. Uh, And I'm going to quote it here. It says, uh, the draft resolution expresses deep concern about the glorification in any form of the Nazi movement, neo-Nazism, and former members of the Waffen-SS organization, including by erecting monuments and memorials and holding public demonstrations in the name of the glorification of the Nazi past and the Nazi movement and neo-Nazism. It also went on to um, say that uh, it calls on states to ban festivities in honor of the Nazi regime and and it calls on, on states to block the demolition or removal of um, any monuments to those who fought against Nazism during World War II. Now, a handful of states actually either abstained or voted against it. 105 countries backed Russia at the UN uh, General Assembly. Um, 51 states, largely NATO, European states, surprise, surprise, um, went with the U.S. to say, oh, we're not, we're not going to support this. How does the U.S. stand here today after World War II and, you know, all the movies depict rah-rah America, we beat the Nazis, and today our country won't vote to condemn Nazism? What happened? Well, what happened is Ukraine. We're in a situation where we have decided to erase 
the reality of Ukraine and construct a fiction that's based upon this prince, this nation that's driven by principles of freedom, uh, diversity, tolerance, and uh, democracy. That's, that's the image. Ukraine is the exact opposite of that. Everything I just said, they're not. Russia, of course, is dealing with facts. Uh, Russia knows that there is a neo-Nazi movement that has seized control of the Ukrainian body politic. This neo-Nazi movement is directly linked um, to Adolf Hitler's horrific regime um, through the person of Stepan Bandera, this nationalist. And even though Russia has all the facts on their side, the politics aren't on their side, because the United States, of course, is saying that we must support Ukraine. Russia is using this as a fake argument to isolate Ukraine. And, and this is what they're doing. But what, what gets me, you know, it's not just what we're doing in the United Nations. Understand this. Last in September, we let Nazis into the United States Congress. Hardcore Azov Battalion founding members. People, I mean, they were embraced by people like Jamie Raskin. John McCain. John McCain on the cover of the Washington Post, I believe, shaking hands with a Nazi. Yeah, he's dead. So I, I, yeah, you still shaking. I mean, it's still shocking. And Raskin, but you know, Raskin's sort of the face of the uh, of of the current pro rah rah Ukraine. Wears his blue and white tie on uh, on or blue and yellow tie on on TV. Raskin, when he first came into Congress, he was elected in the 2016 cycle. One of the first things he did was vote in favor of uh, an amendment to the Department of Defense Appropriations Bill, which uh, American taxpayer funds being used to finance training uh, of the Azov Battalion. The answer for why is that it was a white supremacist, neo-Nazi. In 2019, he even wrote a letter to or signed a letter to Mike Pompeo, then Secretary of State, asking the following question. Why isn't the Azov Battalion listed as a foreign terrorist organization given their white supremacist Nazi affiliations? Uh, and suddenly, in April 28, he's standing up on the congressional floor chastising Marjorie Taylor Greene for daring to say that the money that was being sent to Ukraine would be used to train Nazis. Where's your proof, he shouted. Where's your proof? Hey, Jamie, all we have to do is pull up your own words. There's our proof. And you let these Nazi scum into the people's house where they not only got to address Congress as if there's some sort of you know, superior brand of democracy, they auctioned off literal Nazi memorabilia to raise $38,000 in support of the Nazi cause. So it's not just what we're doing at the United Nations. The United States is fundamentally broke. We are a nation that has lost touch with reality. We're a nation that's lost touch with what we're supposed to stand for. We're a nation that's lost touch with our past. Our forefathers who fought World War II would be rolling over in their graves as speak if they knew they were putting Nazis in the people's house and voting at the United Nations in support of the furtherance of their hateful, odious ideology. That, and look, Scott, you're absolutely right on that front. And unfortunately, like you said, the battle lines are basically being drawn. It's just on, shocking, right? On the diplomatic level at the U.N. I mean, for the U.S. to vote against this resolution. Like, what are you saying here? Well, the thing is, you almost have to vote against the resolution because if you vote for the resolution, look, the resolution wasn't put out there for no reason. Right. It was mm-hmm. put out there because it understood that, yeah, these guys are Nazi. These things are these guys are vestiges of the branches 105 of five countries voted with Russia on the resolution. Well, yeah. America was in the minority. Yes. To reject it. Yes. And think about what that means. Think, meaning, who are you backing? 
if this is basically what you have to vote, meaning if you're stuck in a political position where you have to basically vote against this resolution, who are you for? Yeah, it's basically what we're pushing. Scott, from your standpoint, what does this mean from a larger perspective in the regards to these battle of ideas? Meaning you're watching something on the world stage where I strongly suspect or what I strongly believe is a shift in world, let's say world thinking, world policy. And that stuff is being fought with Ukraine being, let's say, the the tip of the spear of that particular fight. Well, like the the French politician, the guy that was in the headlines today, yeah. the the Patriots Party, mm-hmm. uh, Florian Filippo, who basically said, you know, the, Zelensky is an him. American puppet. Yeah. And when they're done with him, they're going to kick him to the curb. They're going to drop him. But, I mean, but this this is larger consequences. He's right, but... Yeah. Well, he is right. I mean, you know, Juan Guaido is sitting there pointing, you know, pointing fingers. But what does this mean from a larger standpoint in regards to world order? I guess that's... Because I think that's where your article was going. That this idea of world order is changing. <laughs> this kind of hegemonic power that the West basically had at their disposal is coming up against opposition in a way where it is finding itself somewhat difficult in order to get the rest of the world opinion on its side. Give me your take on that from a larger perspective of things of what it, let's say, if you're looking at it from space, what does it look like? Well, if I look at it from space, I'm seeing the United States uh, constructing a framework, a vessel, uh, which is called the rules-based international order. And then I see the Russians, the Chinese, pretty much the rest of the world, constructing another vessel called the law-based international order. And this vessel is filled with that which brings relevance to this argument for people to support. And I, I'm, I'm seeing the United States starting with a full vessel. I mean, the world-based international order has been around for 70-some-odd years, 80 years. And the law-based international order is sort of new, and it's, 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 it's only got a little bit of stuff in there. But every day, every week, every month, every year that passes, the, 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 the rules-based international order is being drained. I mean, right now it's being drained at, at a rate where it's going to be empty very soon. There's literally nothing the United States can turn to and say, hey, world, this is why you support this. This is what's good. There's nothing good about the rules-based international order, literally nothing. It's an empty vessel going to collapse on itself. Meanwhile, the law-based international order is being filled, and it's not being filled gradually, but pretty much all that was in the rules-based international order is gravitating over to the law-based international order. So from space, I'm looking at this transfer of legitimacy, and uh, it's real. It's, it's, it's discernible. Um, the United States stands for nothing, literally. And I say this as an American who loves my country, who was and is and will for always be ready to die for what my country potentially stands for. I believe in the hope of America, the dream of America— but that hope and dream is being cast aside by whatever we want to call these people who are in office. They're not Americans. I mean, I know they got U.S. citizenship. They got the flag lapel and they got the flags behind them. But they're not stand- any president who would sit there and tell his United Nations ambassador to vote against a resolution condemning Nazi ideology is not a true American president. He's representing something that doesn't represent the American people. And that's the problem. The rules-based international order does not represent the American people. It represents American political and economic elites who have gravitated so far away from what the United States is supposed to stand for that they're literally unrecognizable as Americans. They bear the title of America, but they're not what America should be and should be aspiring to be and was at one time. And, um, you know, this is, this is just 
shocking to me. I'm, I'm sickened to my stomach about what's happening to my country. Um, you know, and, and look, it's, it's ironic because now I look across the Atlantic and, you know, I grew up wanting to kill Russians. I mean, I'm not joking about it. This was real. They were the enemy. They were the evil empire. And I bought into that. And now I'm looking across the Atlantic and I'm going, they're on the right side of history. The irony of it from my perspective that I'm sitting here, you know, going, my God, the Russians are in the right. The Russians are doing the right thing. And my country's not. And it's, I have to tell you, it's, uh, I'm not going to say conflicting, but it's not easy to, 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 to embrace that, given my history. But, you know, you have to embrace where the facts take you, and that's where we are. Well, Scott, I actually had, like, the opposite uh, growing up, right? Like, my family is from Laos, and they had to flee the CIA secret war on Laos, the major, you know, bombing campaign that lasted day and night for 10 years, leaving the country littered with munitions, unexploded ordnance. 40% of the country is uninhabitable. My family came here in the 70s. Uh, I plopped out here. Uh, so I had to kind of contend with going, okay, wait, the U.S. government killed family members of mine, immediate family members of mine, but yet you came to the country that killed the family. So I had to kind of contend with that, right? But meanwhile, in the 80s, what we saw was rather than Reagan sending any money there or people to demine the cluster bombs that are littering Laos and, and going forward up until this date, rather than the U.S. saying, mea culpa, we shouldn't have done that. You were never a part of the Vietnam War. That never happened. What did happen, though, was that the Soviets sent demining crews to help Laos. And to this day, that is still happening. And to this day, it's... So I always viewed, like, the Russians as, well, why does America keep telling me in the 80s, right? I'm, I'm a child of the 80s. Why did America... Why does my country keep telling me those people are bad when I know that my ancestral, you know, heritage tells me that those Russians are actually doing good things? Yeah, look, perception versus reality. I was dealing with perception. You were dealing with reality. Yeah, it's it's um, that's that's just the fact. Look, I'm I'm not as familiar with the with the issue of uh, Laos and the Hmong as you are. You know, my my perspective comes from knowing uh, the Ravens, the, the 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 Ford Air Controllers who were sheep dipped into the uh, you know Air America. I grew up with these guys, listened to their stories. I've uh, drank beer with uh, the CIA case officers, uh, the Masula smoke jumpers who went over to Laos to run the you know, the, the, the secret CIA army of Hmong. And I, you know, I'm one of the people that was, you know, I grew up thinking that these guys were freedom fighters and that the evil communists were trying to destroy them and that we evacuated our brave allies to America where we gave them a home and all that stuff. And then later on, as you start to dig deeper, you're going, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite that way, is it? Um, Scott, I want to get to this reporting that troops are on the ground. And the, the reporting came out a while ago, and I think I reported in when it first came out, I think it was in, what, well, Figaro making a point of saying the U.S. was on the ground dictating events. But recent reports came out um, that they're on the ground searching for weapons. Now, there have been Colonel McGregor, if I'm not mistaken, made the point of saying, look, these people are most likely not on the ground searching for weapons. They're most likely on the ground directing events and the whole searching for weapons stuff has more to do with, I mean, that horse is out the barn. It's already been reporting there's no way to keep track of the amount of weapons that we've basically dumped into that country. But what is your take on this? I mean, are they really on the ground counting weapons? Or are they on the ground doing something else that we should be 
grotesquely concerned about considering the propensity or the opportunity for this to basically escalate if those American troops are hit. On this one, I'm going to respectfully disagree with Colonel McGregor. First of all, we already have boots on the grounds doing the stuff that he is saying would be done by these so-called weapons inspectors. We have JSOC covert op- you know, special operators. We have CIA paramilitaries who are there doing the logistics, the communication support, the intelligence support, the operation uh, in prep, and they've been there for some time now. So why do we need to create yet another cover story for putting what? A, a, you know, how many weapons inspectors? Look, I inspected Iraq. We'd go in and we'd maybe have a couple hundred people on the ground at one time. And that's all we're talking about. So it's not a significant shift. I, I believe there's legitimacy in looking for these weapons, and this is the reason why. Tomorrow, I think the Democrats are going to get slapped around on, on Election Day. I think at a minimum, they're going to lose the House. And the House controls the purse. They may lose control of the Senate. And then <laughs> it's, it's all she wrote. There's going to be a lame duck Congress that I believe the Biden administration is going to seek. They've said they want to try and push 40 to $60 billion additional military aid through this lame duck session before the Republicans take over and put the brakes on everything. And, and right now, the way Congress is currently configured, these, this will probably, you know, they'll probably get that bill passed. Um, but here's the problem. All it takes is one person to ask the following question. Reports have come out of Germany where Stinger missiles that the United States provided Ukraine have ended up in Germany, uh, you know, made it back through, uh, you know, the black market. Um, what can you tell me about this? How many weapons have made or have we lost control of da, 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 da. And if the Pentagon's answer is we don't know, that's the death of the bill. So these guys are in, in, in Ukraine. Uh, and, and what's important here is they said on-site inspection. They didn't say auditors. They didn't say inspector general uh, inspectors. These are on-site inspectors, which is a specific forensic associated term. How do I know? I wrote the book on on-site inspection in, when, when we brought, when we breathed live to it, when we started the INF treaty. And then I uh, wrote, you know, volume two when I uh, did seven years of on-site inspection in Iraq, the most intrusive on-site inspections ever done in the history of arms control. On-site inspection has a forensic aspect attached to it. I believe these guys are legitimately seeking to acquire data about the accounting of these uh, weapons. They have to reconstruct expenditures, et cetera. Not that they're going to have the perfect answer, but knowing how Congress works, this is now the scenario. Mr. Pentagon official, you're asking for $60 billion, but we've given them $53 billion, and some of this stuff has ended up back in Europe through the black market. How many weapons have we lost control of? Da, da, da. And the Pentagon is going to say, we need to go to closed session. So automatically, it's no longer part of the public view because now it's classified. They move in, and in closed session, he's going to say, we have carried out a thorough investigation. And I can tell you right now, while there are some weapons that are unaccounted for, it's a small number. We're seeking to mitigate that. But I can guarantee you that we have the situation under control, and it's not going to happen again. And now Congress votes for the money. So that's why I believe the, the on-site inspectors are literally doing on-site inspection of these weapons, and they're not out there playing games that are already being played by better people, more qualified people than them. Interesting. So when Jake Sullivan, the Washington Post is reporting that basically Jake Sullivan jumped into the country, um, into Kiev. Now, the, uh, the overt story in this is that Jake Sullivan is not necessarily pushing 
Ukraine in order to come to some kind of peace agreement. They are pushing them to basically look as if they're potentially open to a peace agreement. Um, But is that really what Jake Sullivan is there for? I mean, is it one of those things where they accept that this has gone so far that they can only go but so far? Meaning Joe Biden has wed himself to this issue so much that all things been equal, they can't necessarily accept a political loss. By the same token, they can't necessarily get a win out of it either. Meaning, is Jake Sullivan there in order to kind of create this thing of like, look, something needs to be done in this and we can't continue to continue to escalate this conflict on the ground? Meaning, there are also reports that there have been peace, not peace overtures, but at the very least, an open connection to Russia on the very issue of Ukraine in order to prevent it from spiraling, spiraling out of control. Give me your take on why Jake Sullivan is there. I mean, you know, there's always the optics in regards to the overt part of the story. But what's the real, from your point of view, seeing that reporting that Sullivan has basically went to Kiev. Why is Sullivan there? And is there this really back channel that's continuously stayed open between Moscow and Russia as this continued to escalate? Well, first of all, I do believe there's a back channel that's been kept open. Um, I think William Burns has been running it, the CIA guy who was a former State Department guy who wrote a book literally called The Back Channel. Um, he specializes in. So um, it's been there. How effective it's been? Uh, you don't have two nuclear-armed powers like this going at it like they are in Europe without a back channel to make sure that nothing gets out of control. Let, let's just be frank here. Russia is winning this conflict, will win this conflict, and there's nothing the United States or NATO can do to stop that. Everybody's going, well, what about Kerosol? What about this? Dude's wearing a poker game, all right? And you, you ever seen how people stare at the cars, and then they start betting, and the betting goes around? It's bluff. They're betting. Boom. To put chips on the table, boom. I'm going to boom, get match, boom, boom, boom. But NATO's holding a pair of twos, and they know Russia's got at least a full house. It's over. They can't win it. If Russia keeps calling their, 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 their raises, eventually they're going to have to put the cards down, and it's all over. So Sullivan's in there right now to try and create the perception that be spun. And, and, and why it's so important? Look, he's done it before, the Biden administration. Please go back, everybody, go to the summer of 2021 and listen to everything the Biden administration said about Afghanistan and how wonderful it was and how under control it was and how this, how that, how that. And then, bam, it just ended all of a sudden. Instant defeat, you know, and the evacuation from Kabul. That's happening as we speak right now. There's a growing realization in the Biden administration that things are getting out of control. Not for Russia. Russia's 100 percent in control. Things are out of control for NATO, for Ukraine, for the world. Europe's going to get slapped down like they haven't been slapped down since the strategic air campaign of World War II. Ukraine is over. It's checking out as a nation state. Their electric grid's gone. They're going to starve to death. It's hopeless for Ukraine. And the United States is sitting there having put all the chips on the table. Some, the, the people who are sponsoring this game are going to look at them and go, what were you doing? So Sullivan's in there right now to try and shape perception. Because I believe when the United States pulls the plug, this isn't going to be a gradual thing. This is going to be a rapid reversal and retreat from Ukraine, just like we did from Afghanistan. We let the Taliban come in and take it, and we're going to let Russia come in and take it because there's nothing we can do to stop it. Even with the even with as close as how can I say this, even with the way Biden has wed himself to this story. Like, I guess my biggest concern here I mean, is he's that— tied the European allies yeah, to this victory as well. Exactly. It's like all of these guys have basically tethered themselves to this. Are they really going to be that 
let's say, capable of releasing this. And that's my biggest concern, that they've tethered themselves to this so tightly. I mean, whether it's France, whether it's Germany, all of these guys talking about we have to prepare to take the beating for Ukraine. Will they be willing and will NATO be able to basically let it go? And that's why I'm dodgy on. Right. When has NATO ever let it go? Right. I mean, look, look at look at the fall of Libya. That was from NATO. Good point. First of all, NATO doesn't exist. NATO is a is a is a title given to a grouping of 30 nations, all of whom have to agree before NATO has a policy. So we're, we're, we're dealing with 30 nations right off the bat. But speaking of NATO as a singularity that can act on its own volition. It can't. It's held prisoner to 30 nations that must agree in consensus uh, for something to happen. Um, each one of these nations, for the most part, is a democratic nation, which means that they are held, ultimately held hostage to the vagaries of the political will of their constituents. And right now in Europe, there is revolutionary transformation taking place. We've already seen it bring down some governments. Other governments are catering. France is in a panic. Germany's in a panic. Italy's in a panic. Everybody's in a panic because of Ukraine policy. And I will tell you this. Those politicians will jump off the Ukraine bandwagon before they allow themselves to be voted out of office. All right? Politicians don't exist. Do the right thing. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I, look, from your mouth to God's ears. Um, I hope you're right. I just feel like it's it's not going to get any better for the NATO side. No. Come winter, because uh -uh. the the Russian military is probably the best trained when it's icy and cold out. Yeah, and like you, like Scott was making a point, the Ukrainian government at this point, energy becomes an issue. The ability to, for food becomes an issue. All of those things become issues. Scott, if you had any take on this before we close um, this segment that you want to make on this just for the American public to basically understand about this. Because all things being equal, if you're reading the papers, they make it seem as if Russia is on its back foot. Russia's taking a hit. They need to go to nuclear weapons because apparently the, the you know, the expedition force that was able to take 20% of the territory, they act as if that's not necessarily a it real thing. Happened. Yeah, it's the weirdest thing ever when you're talking to them. Even when you're reading the paper about Jake Sullivan, it's like Sullivan is there and it's like they're talking about all of this stuff, but none of that stuff necessarily entirely makes sense from the beginning of the statement of Sullivan is there because it wants to give across this perspective that these guys are somehow um, that they want to have some kind of peace deal. Is there any way to say facing this for either side to basically meaning Russia's winning this and they have to win it. It's existential from the standpoint of the Russian point of view. But what is a face saving mechanism for NATO, let's say for the United States or for that matter, NATO nations are basically extricate themselves from this without complete political oblivion. Well, I mean, sometimes you've swam so far out in the ocean, even by the time you realize that uh, you're going to drown if you don't turn around, it's too late. You're too far out there. No matter what you do, you're going to drown. And that's pretty much where NATO's at right now when we're looking for a face-saving way out of this. Fortunately for NATO and the United States, the Russians aren't viewing this as a zero-sum game. This isn't I win, you lose. Russia has and has always had, prior to the to invasion of Ukraine, the ultimate objective being a reworked European security framework uh, that respects the legitimate national security interests of all parties involved. And that's still what Russia wants to put on the table. Russia wants to talk about that. And that ultimately will be 
the face-saving mechanism because Europe will be able to sit down and negotiate a treaty that isn't a treaty of surrender to Russia. It's a treaty of um, you know mutual, peaceful coexistence with Russia. Uh, Russia will be coming in there from a position of strength, but I don't believe Russia's going to come to that table as if these were Nazi Germans saying unconditional surrender, accept our terms or else. I think Russia's going to come in thinking the big term. How do we stabilize and normalize relations with, with Europe? And we can't do that by dictating terms. We can only do that through a negotiation where we respect the legitimate concerns of Europe as we insist they respect our legitimate concerns. Russia is the only adult in the room right now, and I believe the adults are going to bring the children to the table, and they're going to, you know, they're going to bring order to uh, what has been chaos and anarchy. That's what I firmly believe. Always appreciate you joining us, man. I, great point of view. The voice you guys were listening to is Scott Ritter. He's a former UN weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. You can follow Scott on Telegram on Scott Ritter. Um, and I guess let's do this. We have a few minutes. We can take calls. The, the number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. And what he said, the adults will bring the kids to the table. I, like I said, from your mouth to God's ears. Right so. now, it looks as if I'm astonished by this on some level. Um, all things being equal, these guys are getting us closer and closer to the brink. And I hope he's right. I hope it is a poker game where it's like, it's like, okay, we're going to put all our cards on the table. We're going to be belligerent. We're going to act like we're going to do this forever. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, fair enough. Are we done? We're done. Yeah. It may be that. I mean, I'm because, tapped out. because for me, it's existential. And I, I think I made this argument before. Well, yeah. For the Russians, this is existential. Yeah. For the U.S., this is dumb, like, wagering. But see, they do look at it as existential in a weird way. If you look, America? Yeah. From the standpoint of this kind of we're in charge, we have the ability to dictate terms around the world. Well, the, the hegemony part yeah, exactly. is at stake. And it's like the West. Unipolar is at stake. Exactly. And from them... I guess the question is, are they willing to relent on that? Is that something that the West is willing to give up? I mean, in the UK, let's take a look at the UK, for example. Masters of the world. They had 51% of the world after the First World War. They took a back seat. They took a back seat. That's a, but they didn't do it willingly. I mean, they, <laughs> what was the issue with Egypt, the, the canal um, that became an the issue? Suez. The, the Suez Canal. The U.S. told them, hey, go back. It, go back. And it was very clear at that point, the UK is no longer a master of the world. And that little... Um, Allen Nation eventually became an Allen Nation, despite the fact that they all still keep their heads up in the air as if they're still the kind of masters of the world. I mean, is it that? Are you calling them but snooty, you know Jamal? J- Jamal? Yes, I am. Jamal. <laughs> yes, I am. You know, and, and you talk about this a lot, um, talking about what Donald Trump would do if Donald Trump yes. runs. Um, but I think the Democratic Party, and we can say the U.S., we're going to have to reconcile a few things ahead of 2024 because I don't foresee in 2024 all of these lingering questions and concerns about Ukraine and our involvement there. I can't see a presidential election being won supporting essentially what we're doing. Let, let me right there. Let, let me just I have say, a hard time believing like, that. Can yeah, I just can say that. I actually agreed with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Same here. Oh, when shocked. she said, "Did you hear the thing?" Yes. yes. She said, "No, no." She said, "If the Republicans come into power, we are not giving one more penny 
to Ukraine. I agree with her, but I don't, I, don't believe, believe I, her. I don't believe her. I don't believe her, though. her I, mean, I believe her. I agree with that statement. I agree with the statement, yeah. but I don't believe her, right? She may, <laughs> vote, against, she may vote against it. Yeah. She may personally vote yes. against it, but right. the party is going to... I guess the it's question gonna is, what, the party it's do. Gonna be, what does it's Big be Papa do? Ish. If Big Papa gets... Look, I heard Donald Trump, I think this was a few months ago, where he was making this argument about Ukraine. He was making this argument that if I was in office, this would have never happened. And you hear that and you think to yourself, he's probably right. He's probably right. He's going to, and and I, I imagine people will say, oh, no, he's going to run a similar campaign that Barack Obama ran in 2008 as the anti-war. Right. Donald Trump is going yeah. to be the anti, yeah. you, you know. He's going to say, Kim Jong-un is firing these missiles. This didn't happen when I was yeah. in office. Vladimir Putin wouldn't have invaded if and I was I in office. And I met with him. Yeah, I would have made a deal. This would have never happened. And the American He's going to talk about gas prices. He's going to talk about inflation. inflation. Economics. Gonna, all yeah. that stuff. He's going to throw everything. And Biden is going to be sitting there having to explain himself about why Ukraine is so important that America right. need to take the hit in regards to gas, why Europe needs to be eaten. Trump can even come out and say, our hapless allies are being hurt by oh, Biden dragging them into this war. He won't spare the allies. Uh-uh. <laughs> he won't spare our allies. He is, I mean... Because they they mocked him. Yeah. They... True. Yes, the they G20 did. The G20 in oh, yeah. 2017. They yes, they did. Him. The mean boys. Yes. Bojo mm-hmm. and Macron. Trudeau and Macron. Mm-hmm. That's right. They were like, like okay. gossiping. These liberals. Like, and you yeah. remember that video of Donald Trump pushing... <laughs> I forgot who it was. He pushed him out the way and got to the front of the... <laughs> got to, I mean... <laughs> He bullied his way up. I yeah, was like, he did. All right. Yeah, Elbowed. he does not care about any of those vassal states at all. I mean, yeah, Biden is going to have to have a hard time making that argument about why. I mean, look, all of those guys are Schultz. I mean, they're protests in Germany. They're protests in France. Those protests didn't come out of nowhere. Well, look, Schultz just went to China last yes. week. Yes. So I don't know what, what all really went down, but I have a feeling China was like, look, you're already on the outs with Russia. Yes. Are you Don't trying to be on the outs here. with yeah, us? Yeah, I know. Don't bring that here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because think, what is his name? Um, what's his name? Made this argument, basically. He, the one, not Europe is a garden. It, it'll come to me in a moment. I'm hearing I'm music. Okay, yeah. I hear I'm the hearing music. music. But yeah, I mean, yeah, this is going to be fascinating. In that election, tomorrow, Biden tomorrow. is going to have a hard time making that case. We'll see tomorrow. And we'll see tomorrow on I'm what happens. Oh, all right. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Manila Chan. Um, I want to thank Malik Abdul for joining us again. He's going to be with us tomorrow. I want to thank our producers. I want to thank our engineers. I want to thank all of you, all of our callers, all, all of our watchers, either on Rumble, on radio. Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back tomorrow. You guys have a good one. Fault Lines. <laughs>